This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning. Happy Thursday to you. We're taking off. We've got a lot to cover today, and uh, you got to start with Mary Tyler Moore. I grew up with Mary Tyler Moore, watching all of her shows My uh, with a single mom raising her kids. Oh, can't you just see her spinning? What city was it? Chicago? Minneapolis. Was, what, is that where she was? I think so. Is that where she ran? She was in that newspaper. It's probably not where the they news filmed office. it. Yeah. You know, Mary Tyler Moore. Back in the day away. when TV shows were, were set in the middle of the country, uh-huh. instead of the coast. Back in middle America, throwing right. her hat up in the air. Oh, Mary Tyler Moore. Uh, passed away at the age of 80 because of her long-term battle with diabetes, type 1. So, and again, perfect timing because uh, she was a, an icon of a woman getting out there, starting a career, getting a job, making life happen. Hmm. Now we got Kellyanne Conway doing the same thing. Watch her go throw her hat in the air. That, yeah. That one of the bucket thing she was wearing at the inauguration. The bucket hat. Remember that? Yeah. And her little She looked like she worked in hot dog suit. on a stick. Um, today we'll also be talking about masculinity, femininity, and American political behavior. Because, you know, people say Trump's very manly. He's a manly man. He's, it's all about man and energy and He's combative. We'll see what this all means. Alternative facts. <laughs> and then we sneak in alternative facts. So it's sad. Um, and her smile, what a great woman she was. So uh, She was nominated for an Oscar, too. Was she? Oh, yeah, in... Ordinary People. Yes. Did you see that one? I sure did. Best picture of the year, of that year. I don't even think I was born. <laughs> Sad. Um, a lot going on, too. Donald Trump, you won't believe it, keeps saying stuff that, that, is, uh, that makes people frustrated and mad. We'll talk about that because I have a whole philosophy now. I'm figuring him out. I work with people every day. And I work with a lot of people you can't believe what they say. So instead, you just look at what they're doing. And we're gonna. I've got a little. Mm. I've got a little pattern that's starting to emerge. Okay. <laughs> Can you see inside their hearts? Is that yes. how it works? Mm-hmm. Okay. I am a. I'm a. I'm a heart here. Wow. Heart seer. Yeah. A, we'll get. A, that was a struggle to get to there. Well, yeah. I. I don't know. I've never thought of it as a heart seer, but yeah. Hmm. Mm, we'll get to that in a minute. But first, let's get to the headlines. Find out what's going on around the rest of the country. Terry, what's up? According to a report in the New York Times, President Trump told congressional leaders a story on Wednesday to validate his repeated false claim that he would have won the popular vote if not for millions of illegals. In the story, Trump cites an instance in which Barnard Langer, a a, uh, professional golfer and native of Germany, was allegedly attempting to vote in Florida on Election Day and was then told he wasn't able to do so. As the story goes, Trump says that Langer allegedly saw other people who, quote, did not look as if they should be allowed to vote and were allowed to do so. Oh, they Trump, looked like they did. They shouldn't. Yeah, yeah, Trump allegedly referred to Langer as his friend while telling the story, but his daughter, Langer's daughter, told the Times that they were not friends and that Langer's a German citizen who can't vote. Yeah. So what would he be doing near a voting station on Election Day if he can't vote? So they can't even loiter around a voting station. Yeah, 
Okay. Well, Langer loiters a lot. He's on the golf course. Standing there. So these, this is the story he told congressional leaders that led to the voter fraud uh, okay. story that's going on now. Yeah. Uh, while visiting the Department of Homeland Security Wednesday, President Trump signed two executive orders on immigration. The first order directs federal funding to the construction of the U.S. border wall, a key promise of Trump's presidential campaign. Trump's indicated... Uh, the indicated construction of the wall to begin in months, and he repeated his claim that Mexico w- will reimburse the U.S. for 100% of the wall's costs. Donald Trump said that con- construction of the border wall, again, will begin in months. Mm. Section The second order revokes federal grants from the sanctuary cities and any U.S. city not enforcing federal immigration laws. Mexican President Enrique Peña Nieto condemned President Trump's executive order on immigration. Mexico offers... Uh, and demands respect like the complete sovereign nation that we are, he said. Mexico does not believe in walls, and he had to emphasize once again that his country will not pay for the wall. Again. And also may postpone his visit. It's supposed to happen here in a couple days. Yeah. We'll see what happens. Some of the women who marched on Washington Saturday will be back soon in the name of science. Science. The scientists' march on Washington started as a Reddit conversation over the weekend and now has grown into a group with tens of thousands of supporters. Life Science reports the group, which has more than 125,000 followers of its Twitter account, says it's taking action to support scientific research and people are welcome to join the march whether they are scientists or not. So we'll Ooh. have more marching in D.C. Right. And finally. Yes. Are you a fan of seafood, Matt? Uh, certain types, yes. Certain. Okay. Not bottom feeders. Yeah, you got to get that mid-level fish, ah, right? Mm-hmm. So seafood fans are ingesting up to 11,000 tiny pieces of plastic a year with unknown health effects. This mm. is a new study. Ocean pollution is getting ingested by marine life in the form of tiny toxic microplastics, according to research from the University of uh, Ghent, G-H-E-N-T. I'm not saying that right. It's in uh, yeah. Belgium. Yeah. So Just there- say it. You say it, Jeffrey, with a, with a Russian accent. What, Ghent? Mm-hmm. Gint. There you go. That's it. And if you eat a lot of seafood, these microplastics will eventually end up in your stomach. Scientists currently have no clue what type of implication this will have on a person's health or future generations. The study shows that humans do not pass, or the humans pass 99% of these microplastics, but the remainder gets soaked up by tissues. Buh! So you could have all kinds of... We got a little microplastic going on. Turning little action figures after a while. (laughs) That doesn't sound good. That doesn't sound good. Okay, so Donald Trump, I've got got a theory, and we've we've got a lot to to hammer through here. Um, so, So the new thing, well, not the new thing. So when Donald Trump Came out. Remember, he, one of the big issues was he was all upset about the size of the crowds because he believed the media is trying to invalidate his presidency. Uh, that turned into a huge thing. Um, then voter fraud was another issue he brought up. And he, you know, because of this Bernhardt, the Langer quote, the Langer idea that that was one little folklorish story that he shared. He also um, shared a pew poll. He knows he has the job, right? Yeah. Okay. Just to check. This is part of the theory, right? So um, here's a quote of Donald Trump um, on an ABC interview talking about voter fraud. But what I'm asking, what I'm asking, when when you say, in your opinion, millions of illegal votes, that is something that is extremely fundamental to our functioning democracy, a fair and free election. You say you're going to launch an investigation into this. Done. What you have presented so far has been debunked. It's been called false. Take a look at the Pew reports. I called the author of the Pew report last night. 
and he told me that they found no evidence really? of voter then fraud. Really? Then why did he write the report? He said no evidence of voter Excuse fraud. Me. Then why did he write the report? So According to Pew report, then he's then he's groveling again. You know, I always talk about the reporters that grovel when they want to write something that you want to hear, but not necessarily millions of people want to hear or have to hear. So you've launched an is, investigation. We're going to launch an investigation to find out. Okay. So he's now doubling down on the voter fraud thing, even though the, the, the data he's using isn't, doesn't line up with his belief set. Okay. Well, I mean, because the guy that did the study is now groveling. Yeah. Because it's against his viewpoint, so, so he doubles obviously down. groveling. Now, now, and pay attention to it. Pay attention to it because Donald Trump's not like any other man. No. He's not like any other man. And um, so then this is now David Becker who led the Pew study and he's going to, um, I guess, respond to Trump. Yes. He's right about some of it. Uh, the reasons we wrote the report is because we were studying the uh, – the degree to which records were out of date, mainly because people move. And he's quite right about the fact that there are millions of records that reflect people who have since moved to a new address. And there are, uh, we, we estimated back in, one point, uh, back in 2012, almost five years ago, maybe as many as 1.8 million records of people who had died since they last voted. But there's a big leap between an out-of-date record, an administrative inefficiency on a list, and the act of voter fraud. The it, it just doesn't happen. This is not something that hasn't been looked at. Okay. The Bush administration looked at it. Several other. I mean, all, he the guy goes on talks about the state of Ohio and Louisiana right. looks at these things almost every other year, and they see that there is no evidence of voter fraud. Right now, watch details, details, details. Yeah. None of which matter to Donald Trump. By the he, way, Steve Bannon, mm-hmm. special assistant yeah, to yeah. Trump, registered in two states to vote. Yeah. See, there you have it. There you go. There's a pretty good voter example fraud, of it. Right there. Okay, so meanwhile, okay, so here's the theory, and I, I think it's I think it's pretty solid. Yeah, what we know about Donald Trump is that about every two days, so far, yeah, he's only been at this really six days. Yeah, since every, Monday. Since yeah, and well, even even before the then, right? Yeah, yeah. So every six day, every two days, he releases a new crazy thought. Okay, now I, I, these are the crazy thoughts so far that have kind of piqued people's attention. So in his first two days, he, it was all about the crowd size. Crowd size. And everyone thinks that's because he's an egomaniac, and he probably is. Yeah. But it's just because he's an egomaniac, right? Um, then two days later, it was all about the voter fraud thing that we're still talking about. Right. And um, that's now gone four days of talking about it. And now we're getting deeper into it. Yeah. But th- there's, there's something kind of to it, but it's not accurate. But no. the data's off. The data's wrong. But they just think, again, it's still Donald trying to validate himself. Yes. And then um, he throws out the waterboarding comment that it's okay to waterboard and and waterboarding's right. fine and it works. And it's not like he's saying we're going to do this regardless. He's saying if my you know, CIA and the defense guy come back and they say we're not going to do it, he goes, I'll take their lead on that. Yeah. So he's just throwing something out there. By the way, again, throwing something out there and just doing it because he's a, he's either an idiot or being an egomaniac. Right. But he's clueless is what That's, is is. The, so if you yeah. notice, this is the, the mantra un- of the media. The underlying story. He's, he's clueless, clueless or an idiot or an egomaniac. Yeah. Now, if you notice, um, the people that he loves that or that not that, that loved him. The forty percent that got him elected, they believe those. You can't trust the crowd numbers anyway. They believe that. Right. So he's just talking to his base. The voter fraud. They believe 
The illegals are in the country yeah. skewing everything. They believe that. Liber- liberal loving illegals. Right. Yes. Li- liberal loving <laughs> illegals. They also believe that war- waterboarding is fine to do well, with and, people. And the way he says it, he goes, they're chopping off heads. Why can't we fight the same sort of fight? Mm-hmm. So here's my theory. Donald Trump, he's, he is probably an egomaniac. He probably is ho- horribly um, informed and doesn't understand. He's misinformed. He doesn't know. He watches cable news every morning. Right. And he's playing everybody. Yes. Because Donald Constantly. Trump, again, he's the president of the United States that ran the table and beat 18 other professional teams who were professionals in this industry, and he, he killed them. So here's what I believe he's doing. He, he is the master of the bait and switch. Mm-hmm. He is the master of the distraction. He is the master of let's talk about this while I'm meanwhile doing this. And I think personally he is shoring up his 40 percent by saying these crazy comments about every two days. And every all of his 40 percent love it. They love it. They think he's great. Like, hey, he keeps them happy. The other 60 percent think he's loony. Meanwhile, he's passing like five executive orders a day, five executive orders that exactly do exactly what he said he was going to do. And even deeper than that, he's getting his people in place and getting the legislation behind all of each one of these mandates that will make it not an executive order anymore, but a law, which which Obama had a hard time doing. And we're everybody else is stirred about the voter fraud thing, which he doesn't even believe. Deep, deep down. He's just keeping the base strong and stirred. And then what he's going to do for about the next two years, I'll bet you bucks, about every two to three days, another stupid comment. Another stupid comment. The media is in a frenzy, in a big you know, cloud of smoke. And then about two years into this, through the midterms, the smoke's going to clear. Mm. And everyone's going to look and there's going to be this incredible infrastructure of everything that he's ever wanted <laughs> – uh, it, legislation, and I bet you a lot of his legislation will be with both parties. I mean, he's going to pass an infrastructure bill because they've already got the half the Democrats. They've already got their plan, yeah. so he'll take that plan and the Republican plan. He'll call it Trump, and he'll kill it. Meanwhile, everyone's talking about waterboarding mm-hmm. and what other stupid things he's going to come up with. But he's going to get results while he's distracting everybody from the results he's getting. And keeping him out of the way until he gets up to speed. I read a, someone kind of speculating this is kind of his version of The Apprentice. Oh, I, don't you think? Right. He's the executive producer and the star. And you see him signing the executive orders. And there's 20 photographers out there. And he's really making this into a show. He's yep. big on visuals. This is how it looks. And yeah. so he's crafting his show. He he did the exact same thing with his, his, his uh, enemies in the – in the election, yeah. he just slowly created chaos. Now, here's why I think it's happening. And then Kellyanne Conway made that comment. In fact, let's go to it. Clip number one, uh, Kellyanne Conway talking about co-parenting. I consider myself someone who has good relations with the press. I, at least I think so. I think we have to have a free and open press. What I say about it is that this White House and the media are going to share joint custody of this nation for eight years. And we ought to be able to figure out how to co-parent. Okay. Now, it, now you know what? It's, I think that that is the, exactly already what's happening. The media, when she says it, though, notice what's happening. 
Steve Bannon mm-hmm. is the media in Trump's head. So every one of the things we mentioned, the crowd, the voter fraud, the waterboarding, and every other crazy comment that is extreme is coming from Bannon. And Bannon feeds him the idea that keeps the base engaged and will totally spin the, the mainstream media. Right. And then now the new thing that CNN's talking about is where's Reince Priebus? Yeah. Well, it's working. You know, it's the exact same. It's Who's the exact crafting model. all the executive orders? Reince <laughs> Priebus is getting work done. And if, if the media keeps being so distracted by what they think is the idiocy or the ego of Trump, they're taking the bait. Yeah. Because they're not talking about all of his – Executive orders. I mean, they mention them, right? And then they go do an in-depth on crowd on the crowd size. Yeah, they did it they last go, night. It, they do it every time. Yeah, it's brilliant. I mean, it, remember, you're, this is the most media savvy guy you've got. Period. Ever in the presidency, and he is playing the media. So your theory is that he's essentially a magician. He is a magician. He's making you watch his left hand while he's got something else going on in his right hand, and he's taking your wallet. He creates numbers out of thin air. Oh, and by the way, and then everybody thinks that matters, but it doesn't matter to his 40 percent base. It doesn't matter because every one of these, you know, every one of these things he says is perfectly aligned to what they already believe. So he's not going to lose 40 percent of the country. And then he's not trying to convince the other 60 percent either. If you notice, he's not really trying to convince anyone. He's just building a scaffolding underneath this thing that when the cloud goes away, the other 60% are going to like certain things, like an infrastructure bill, that, that immigration is improving, that uh, people's jobs are, are having more jobs, that we have a change in health care that actually works for other people and more people. So they can fight it. They can fight it. And again, there will still be 35 to 40% of the country that hates him. But right. he's going to pick up the other 20 when no one's looking. No matter how amazing that rabbit out of the hat trick is, you still have people that aren't just – they just don't like magic. They just hate magic. They're magic haters. Anyway, that's just my theory. But if you look at everything he's doing instead of what he's saying, I think it sticks. It's going to work. And whether you like him or not, it's happening. So what the media ought to do is make sure they're also paying attention to what's being passed and, and what eventually becomes legislation. Remember, this is he's been at it just a few days now. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll be talking about masculinity, femininity, and American political behavior. Interesting topic up next. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. When you think of Donald Trump, do you do you think Man, he's, you know, he's just such a manly man. He's so strong. He talks so strong. He's not weak. Is Does gender, do we identify a politician with certain traits that are either a masculine trait or a feminine trait? Is this a real thing? And is it happening? Do, do we, does it impact politics? Do you ever wonder how we see people? And how we see their traits and uh, and the impact that that might have on politics, especially as we had uh, Hillary Clinton running for president as well. Did she did she come off uh, with more feminine traits, more masculine traits or both? 
And can a candidate have both? And what is really the best uh, identity that we can have? Joining us today to talk about it is the author of the book, Masculinity, Femininity, Femininity, and American Political Behavior. Monica L. McDermott joins us. Monica is a professor of political science at Fordham University and the author of the book. And we're honored to have you on the, on the show. Thank you, Monica, for being with us. Hi, it's a pleasure to be here. Talk to us about um, these these kind of uh, I, I don't know what you call them. Tr- uh, is it gender traits? Is it gender? <laughs> what what do we call a masculine approach versus a feminine approach to politics to to leadership? Well, yeah, these are I tend to call them gendered traits or gendered personality um, orderings. It's it's the extent to which any individual holds personality traits that are deemed masculine or feminine. Mm. Most people have a mix of both. There are very few people out there who are just one or just the other, and it doesn't depend on biological sex. It's really just the personality that you develop either from birth and socializing over time. Give us some examples of uh, masculine personality traits or gendered traits and feminine. So so masculine traits, what makes up the masculine spectrum, tends to be um, people who are competitive, who are dominant, who are aggressive, who are independent and individualistic, that kind of the things that we consider, you know, masculine or manly, mm-hmm. typically called them, even though they're not exclusive to men. And then feminine traits are things like caring, uh, loving kids, being sensitive to the needs of others, nurturing, um, more soft-spoken, less aggressive, things like that. Mm. And, and those are the, the things we've typically associated with mothers, let's say, yeah. that are no longer limited to that. And you say, I mean, most people would would have both of these traits. Mm-hmm. Um, is historically, when we look in the political world and political behavior, do we tend to favor the male traits, or the do we? Because it seems like historically, men have been in there more. Have they been bringing more of the male uh, gendered traits to to the to their political world? Yeah, there's there's so much caught up in that. But the basic story is that because we've traditionally, and, and this has changed over the past 20 years, but because society up until that point um, expected men to be masculine and women to be feminine, and men who sort of trespassed on feminine personality traits were viewed with suspicion, and the male traits tend to indicate leadership and strength, we tended to prefer masculinity in our leaders. Hmm. That's changed as we care about different issues as women become more masculine men aren't afraid to show their feminine side things like that it's sort of gotten much more mixed i would say but for the position of the presidency that's still something we want a strong leader for and that's masculinity right there and um i, I guess too when we look at it this is where we get into other terms like a uh, dove you know mm-hmm. and or um um just you know, pro-war or pro-hawk hawk or a dove, but also mm-hmm. pro-war or pro-negotiating. Um, uh, so when when you when you look at it, you, how how do you see as as somebody who studies this in detail? How do you see these gender traits um, impacting our political world? Well, they're things that have always been there. It's just no one's really looked at them before. So. Uh, there are various ways. You just on issues. You just mentioned that's absolutely correct. That people who are more hawkish on foreign policy tend to be more masculine. People who are dovish tend to be more feminine because, of course, 
the feminine personality dictates sort of negotiation and helping and working with, whereas the masculine personality is more aggressive, which mm. is a very hawkish strategy. Yeah. But um, it falls along very neatly along party lines, which is the biggest divide in America, especially these days. Masculine people with masculine personality traits tend to support Republicans more and be, you know, identify with Republicans more, whereas the Democratic Party is the party of feminine personality traits, the caring, Mm -hmm. you know, wanting to take care of the less fortunate in society. And so that's the way it ends up working. And there have been others who have done research on the parties and shown that people do consider the parties in those terms. They consider Republicans to be the party of toughness. And they consider the Democrats to be the party of caring and helping. Hmm. Does um, it just as you because no human is either. And that's probably why we're all so conflicted. Right. Because yes. policy wise or issues wise, I might I might be a hawk and a dove. And, and so I guess how do we ever cut through it? Well, it works, um, again, in sort of twisted ways, um, not meaning twisted in a drug. But complicated. But complicated ways. But what I found is that when you're pretty much wholly masculine, so when you have very high levels of masculine traits and low levels of feminine traits, that's a Republican personality profile right there. Mm. That's a person who's going to support the Republicans most of the time. When you are high in feminine traits and low in masculine traits, you're very strongly Democratic. The interesting part is the people who are sort of in the middle, and there's a big block of people that we call androgynous. Mm. And I know that term has some negative associations, but not in this sense. Not yeah, not in and not in the academic world. Right, exactly. And those are people who are high in both masculine and feminine traits. And those people tend to go towards the democratic side. So the femininity tends to dominate in politics when you have mixed traits like that. Is there have you have you ever seen or who would you hold up as an example of one that could balance the two? Hillary Clinton actually yeah. did a great job. Yeah, I did. I managed to do research beyond my book right before the election on how people viewed Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. And Hillary Clinton had she was slightly more masculine than not. So which is something I think we would all expect. Mm-hmm. And then she was about in the middle on femininity. So she actually mirrored the American populace and their own traits very, very well. And because, yeah, they were even calling her more of a hawk than Donald Trump uh, in military. Exactly. There were elements to her that are very tough. She has, she's not just your typical feminine female. She is a tough masculine yet with feminine traits individual. Interesting. And well, the woman part doesn't even really matter that much. Yeah. And I mean, it's it's even weird, it seems like, talking about it in feminine and masculine traits, because it also seems like we're not supposed to do that. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? Like, like it's, I, yeah. we're generalizing, except you're not. This, this, this is about, this is about just labeling trait type. Yes. Not, actually, yeah. I've had the question raised about the sort of linguistic, um, you know, the things associated with these terms. So, yes, I'm using them in a neutral trait sense. Yeah. Obviously, any personality trait can be taken to an extreme and become sort of a negative trait. Mm-hmm. But these things don't have to be. A certain level of aggression is what gets you through life successfully. Without it, you know, the strong get ahead, let's face it. Right. So these are things on both sides that are positives if they're sort of balanced and not, you know, used extremely to one 
side or the other, which, of course, leads us into a discussion of Donald Trump, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> it totally does, doesn't it? And, Sorry if I jumped the gun. Well, no, but, and he, and he, but it's, so, it's so filled. Don, and Donald is so filled with what we keep thinking are these are egoic, kind of aggressive, dominant, mm-hmm. competitive, like even the competitive about his numbers still. Um, yeah. It's... And yet, here's here's I guess another issue or side is hawks. You know they they're going to go get what they want. They're going to they're going to go get the dove. They're yeah. going to doves seem to create costs and expenses, and hawks seem to go create money. So or so it's 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 this weird paradigm we have of these traits. And is it are they accurate? views of the traits or is it just because we're in these party lines? Um, that's, it's a good question. Obviously, Hillary Clinton sort of crossed since she was able to cross right. the traits. Theoretically, she should have been able to cross party lines, which in the end, she sort of did. I mean, she won the popular vote. So obviously, she had a trait combination that paid off popularly. Trump, oh gosh, when I did this study, I was amazed at how masculine people thought he was. Mm -hmm. I expected that. Everyone would expect that. But it was so extreme. I wish I could show you the graph. It's just this Is it off the chart? (laughs) It is. Just everyone, the maximum masculinity they attribute to Donald Trump, which um, I honestly thought before the election would be a detriment to him. Mm -hmm. Um, But the way he played his campaign in terms of the Electoral College he actually managed to play that to his advantage in the Rust Belt states yeah, and managed to win the Electoral College even while losing the popular vote. And so these things, it's not just party. There's something that also goes above on these things. If you can win Rust Belt Democrats just by being Manly. strong, mm-hmm. that says something, and it, it, it gives the Democrats something to worry about. Well, and... And honestly, it all it, it's some of it might just be bravado, right? Some of it might just oh, yeah. be illusion because I think deep, deep down, Donald probably has more compassion than he shows and mm-hmm. maybe and is probably maybe even more aligned with the democratic view anyway. Yeah, I think it was. Well, but he did. But he plays bravado because he that's his that's his image. That's it's a good that's a good it's a conundrum because I know people who think that yes he's playing bravado and that this isn't really his personality but the the further he goes with it yeah. the more strongly he seems to believe in it the more I think that it might be mm-hmm. his underlying personality traits and as a successful businessman you have to have those traits so right. I'm not sure he had them in his political views originally since he used to be a democrat but I do think he took an opportunity that was presented and has played it very well. And to a certain extent, I think some of that is show. And to a certain extent, I think that he really does have these personality traits. Mm. This is crazy. This is good, Monica. Okay, let's take a break and come back and continue the discussion more with uh, Monica L. McDermott. She's the um, author of the book Masculinity, Femininity, and the American Political Behavior She's enlightening us about some of her research and uh, some of the studies she's been doing about these uh, gendered traits and political process. Stick with us.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us on the phone, Dr. Monica L. McDermott, who is a professor of political science at Fordham University and author of the book Masculinity, Femininity, and American Political Behavior. She is a research um, practitioner who has conducted election surveys at for the L.A. Times poll, CBS News Election and Survey Unit, and the Center for Survey Research at uh, uh, Analysis at the University of Connecticut. Dr. McDermott, thank you for being with us. Oh, thank you for having me. So um, the, it's an interesting because all the polling with Donald Trump um, and nobody expected it really, a big surprise it seemed like. But when you look at it from a gendered you know, characteristics or gendered traits approach, did you see anything coming down the line? You know, um, I, I, everyone in hindsight is going to say, oh, maybe I saw it a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I actually, I did some early polling with Quinnipiac University in, I believe it was May of last year, and we tested the idea that Donald Trump was what political science, old school political science, called a charismatic personality, which is someone who can capture the public attention, lead the public, they feel a sort of a messianic figure, all of these things. It's it's the Mussolini sort of model, but it doesn't have to be, you know, taken to that extreme. Mm-hmm. But we tested whether the public was looking for a leader like that, and then whether they saw Trump as that, which, of course, they saw Trump as that. But there was a substantial portion, over 50% on a lot of these things, who were looking for a leader like that. So it wasn't just his supporters in the Republican primary. It was some general election voters and some Democrats as well. So there was obviously another element to this, and this is part of his masculine personality, to be able to dominate in this way. Um, and there was, there was something else happening. I think that um, some people sort of talked about in terms of authoritarianism, Mm -hmm. but no one really ran with. But that was always, in my mind, sort of an X factor Mm. that I never got a chance to do more polling on, but was always sort of niggling at the back of my mind saying there's something else here that, that could push him over the, the victory edge. So. I mean, so, so a really strong uh, masculine personality, gendered mm-hmm. type, would look authoritarian. Um, Absolutely. But it seems like a really strong feminine uh, might look more like um, Barack Obama. Yeah. In fact, people uh, in 2008, when Obama was running against Clinton, people actually talked about, especially Maureen Dowd, about how... Obama seemed like more of a female than Clinton did. Yeah. I think what they oh, were getting at was the feminine yeah. nature. And they were calling him our first female president because he was so, he came across as so nurturing and caring, whereas Clinton had to sort of have that crying moment in, I think it was New Hampshire, for anyone to see her as anything but, you know, this very masculine, tough figure. Mm. And well, so, yeah, absolutely. Obama was just full of femininity. Well, and you, you, boy, if you look at it just from masculinity to femininity, take the parties out. Mm-hmm. Um, um, Jimmy Carter, more yeah. feminine. Absolutely. Ronald Reagan, more masculine. Far more masculine. Uh, uh, George Herbert Walker Bush. He's he's a, he's a interesting yeah, he's sort of crossover. But he but yeah, some... he's kind of the androgynous. Yes. If, even though that's weird, nobody likes to hear. Exactly. <laughs> um, no one wants it applied to that's them. That's right. Sure. But then, an interesting one term. Mm-hmm. Then Clinton, 
who was extremely feminine in Fem- terms of personality right. traits. Right. The rogue aspect lent him an extra air of something. And then comes in George W. Bush, masculine. His passionate, but his but, passionate but, yeah. conservatism in terms of issues. Exactly. He was very smart in just at least an image, if not an actual policy, in straddling that sort of gendered line, which is a phrase that probably doesn't sound that good, but in in showing some feminine angles, even though in reality he was very masculine. Yeah. Well, and and also from Texas. Yep. Military strong. Mm -hmm. um, And then 9-11 made his masculinity come out. Yeah. Yeah. Then Barack Obama... Yep. Feminine again. Mm-hmm. Then No one thought he was tough enough. Not not tough enough. And so I wonder is so if you take all parties aside and it's almost like the reason it's hard to keep a party in presidency is if is it might be more feminine or masculine traits. The country after 8 years and and plus a little softness of George Bush and and the feminine side of George Bush, you know, after all those 16 years, they might be thinking we need extreme masculinity, strength, mm-hmm. aggressiveness, dominance, competition. Absolutely. And then, and then it pulled us all the way over. Yeah, especially in a certain portion of the population, that portion mm. of the population that felt that all of those years of feminine caring and taking care of certain groups, at least as they see it, and leaving them behind – and what they wanted then was someone who was just going to be tough, take care of things for them. Mm. And Donald Trump just stepped in at exactly the right time in history to do this. Isn't that amazing? And yeah. again, I mean, a really interesting idea is Barack Obama won a Nobel Peace Prize mm-hmm. when he hadn't even served as president yet. <laughs> right. He hadn't even done anything. He was but, already seen that way. Yes. That's right. But it was almost it again was the world saying we need we need these feminine traits back in America. Yeah. Wow. And then there was a rebellion against that. Mhm. Isn't it's really an interesting and it it seems pretty accurate. So so in well, a way think so. if you look I mean <laughs> you're on to something here Monica. You should study this. <laughs> I that, might make a career. You might write you write a book yeah. about it Monica. Um it's really uh I think a I think it's it, it's it's just I think it's a nicer way to look at it in a way a more interesting way than just Republican Democrat policy policy issue issue. I think so, and I think it's also uh, one of the points that comes from it. Although I hate to really stress it because it makes a lot of um, old school feminists, shall we say, very angry. But it's also a better way to talk about gender than just biological sex, mm. because yeah. I've never believed biological sex was determinative of anything, at least in today's society, because so many women don't have kids, right. don't get married, or, you know, have really successful careers and are very aggressive and everything like that. And it just, it doesn't have a place anymore. Mm. That, that, I mean, that's true. And then you see the, the um, you see the the Million Woman March mm-hmm. that went on, which which almost is this this perfect balance to the Trump masculinity. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's the someone's got to care. And I think it's more. And there were a lot of speakers there. It was great saying women's issues are the economy. They are employment. They are. Mm -hmm. They're not defined by the fact that 
women are, you know, have different parts than men. That's right. And so that gets you to the point of it's not about sex. It's really just about the kinds of issues you care about. And the men that were in that, that crowd, I'm sure, have very strong levels of feminine personality. Yeah. And if you notice, though, the, the ones that made the news were being more aggressive, more yeah. competitive, more dominant. Yeah. And that's absolutely how it should be. Yeah. It should be that you have both and you just favor one side or the other. Like I said, it's very rare in our society to have only one or the other set of traits. Yeah, that's, um, it tells us a lot, doesn't it? I mean, and so it's almost too though that that we're always looking for the balance and because we can't find it in one person on one issue, we we just, we, we look for it over time. And part of that is party. Part of that comes back to that because you it's it's hard to win a party primary if you have a balanced gendered profile as a candidate yeah because that's not what the party voters want so the party voters want for republicans an extremely masculine figure and for the democrats they want a feminine figure so that balance it's hard to get someone like that that's why clinton i think was so rare that's yeah. in the way people saw her and it, what counts and it and and yet she she couldn't pull it off cuz she was too balanced right well she pulled off the popular vote she she pulled off the popular vote exactly so but that's she evidence that, that is that, actually that people wanted it Mm-hmm. That, that plays really well, but her electoral strategy failed her. Isn't that um, fascinating? And then, too, yeah. it's, uh, you have to take it, it seems like, in context to who you're replacing. A lot of times we think the battle would be against two candidates, but right. um, in the end, I guess, it's really awesome. against the context of who's been in. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. What, where do you go from here? Ah, that's a good question. I want to do more with the candidate angle. I only got to do one really short poll that wasn't even a representative sample. So I want to get to somehow find a pot of money at the end of some rainbow and be able to conduct some really good studies about how people view probably congressional candidates because there are more of them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, do some polling in congressional districts and sort of get at how people react to different levels of personality traits and how they view female candidates and male candidates differently, um, just to demonstrate that that's no longer, sex is no longer determinative. And one of the things that I personally want to show, which I have shown with Hillary, is that masculine traits don't necessarily hurt female candidates. Okay, because people, you know, they were always saying her tone, she's shrill, she's screaming. Right. I mean, I guess that's a subtle um, bias that I guess people have. That is that is absolutely a bias. But at the same time, you get people like Malcolm Gladwell, who, you know, is fantastic. I don't mean to badmouth him. Right. But who says that Hillary lost because she was too masculine. And that my data shows that's absolutely not the case. Yeah. That her masculinity helped her and her femininity really helped her. But her masculinity was a positive effect, too. So it's that balance that matters. Do you think if Hillary had been um, considerably more feminine um, and, and or less less hawkish, um, do you do you think? Because it, the powerful thing is, she could have been the first female president, and right. and it was right there, and right. by the vote, she had it. Um, it, what I guess 
would she have lost more if she had been more feminine? I think so, yeah. So, because she had to strike right at this time a more masculine side. Yeah, because the president—that's that's our leader. Yeah, you can be more feminine and get elected to Congress, depending on the district. But when you're being elected by the United States of America for the top position in the land, if you don't have those masculine traits to be commander in chief and things that are necessary and that people want, then no, no one's going to elect you mm. to that. Can you fake it? Ooh, uh, sure, I mean, if you're really good, I guess. I mean, but, but I guess, I mean, you have to fake it to the level of policy, and you also have to fake it, you got to have the right tone and tenor. And I think if you have to fake it, I can't imagine why you would want to be president. It's true, huh? It's not you. Yeah, you'd have to do all kinds of things that would just make you really squeamish and sick. <laughs> well, and I mean, maybe that is kind of how you get elected, right? Maybe that's how Barack was sounding stronger. Well, and he was compassionate sounding too. But you're eventually going to fall back to who you are. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, you absolutely will, which is the interesting thing about Trump is that no one's quite sure who what is going to fall back to. So right. it's going to be interesting to watch. Oh, boy. Yeah, that's Crazy. another thing, obviously, I'll, yeah. be, I'll be watching and doing research on. Well, I want to hear more of it, Monica, so keep going. Okay. <laughs> this is fantastic. Uh, we appreciate you. Thanks for being with us. No, thank you for having me. It was great. You bet. Dr. Monica L. McDermott, uh, a, great, uh, a great discussion and insight. Uh, again, we can have these gendered traits, um, and they can explain a lot. And they're not taboo. You can talk about them. Just don't. You, it's not. It's not about your parts. It's about your traits. That's the hard part. We we just have a hard time separating it, don't we? We'll take a break, my friends. Come back. Wrap up. First hour, helping you see the good in the world and be the good in the world. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Masculinity, femininity, what uh, what traits do you carry? Are you a competitive, dominant, aggressive person? Do you express caring, loving? Are you nurturing? Do you worry about those that are, uh, that are maybe underserved, underprotected? So just as it's important with our president, and as, mu- as many of us are trying to figure out our president, um, it's, it's also important to you at home. And what do you teach your kids about the, these traits? Balance, right? Moderation might be a great lesson for all of us to teach. We can be loving and still aggressive and strong, and you can be competitive, and yet worry about others. They can all go hand in hand. That's how you create a healthy, balanced person, right? Okay, there's the there's your there's your lesson of the day. Do what you can to create the balanced approach. We'll take a break. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here with Terry South and Jeffrey Simpson. The gang's all here. And today we are talking about a lot of fun stuff. Um, Boy, Donald Trump keeps stirring the pot. Uh, 
saying over and over, Mexico, you're paying for that wall. You're paying for the wall. And now Mexico's saying, we're not paying for that wall. Well, then maybe we ought not meet. Let's not meet then. Oh, boy. Here we go. Sanctuary cities. Another topic of uh, of interest. These are the cities that, that don't, you know, immediately deport immediately. They turn over the bad guys. Anybody that's committed a crime, they'll turn over to ICE and send them on. But they don't just grab random people that are just yeah. working and you know aren't causing a problem. They leave them alone. Leave them alone. And uh, and now Donald's saying, well, then that that, that might impact things down the road. Yeah, they, he, no more sanctuary cities. Federal funding to those cities could be a target. And then these cities are now having a little pushback saying, well, Okay. Shut down Los Angeles International Airport. See, See what, what happens, happens when you <laughs> shut down LAX. But this is the complexity of the issue. And again, we're seeing, I think, the divide. Middle America is sitting there saying, yeah, we don't want to keep paying for all of this. And LA and big cities are saying, well, this is how this works. Yeah. These, we need help. We need support. So, boy, who's going to solve that problem? As we talked about last hour, masculine and feminine. Mm. Donald's going all masculine traits and gendered traits, and we got a lot to get into. It's um, today. We will also be talking about uh, how to predict your baby's first words, mm. which is important uh, to both of you. It has to be daddy. Yours will be daddy. You think it has to be? I have to win. Well, if you in the day when you get home, if you would just keep – we'll find out. But maybe if you just no. keep saying da, 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 just say that, just play a tape and just keep playing that right. for your daughter, maybe it will happen. Maybe it will pick up. No, she'll probably say mama. Yeah, she probably will. Even if I do all that. Well, she's smart. Yeah. She knows what I'm doing. If my daughter spend too much time with our soon-born son, his first words will be toot toot. Toot toot. Probably. Hmm. Why? They're just kind of in this crude phase. Yeah, they think the, it's just the funniest thing in the world. Your kids talk like sailors. Yeah, I know. Toot, toot. If only I could get them to eat some spinach. Oh yeah, like Popeye. Um, we'll be getting into that baby's first words. Also, uh, a Louisiana woman delivers a 14-pound baby. We'll update you on her health. <laughs> She's still alive. Her, her status. And we've got audio too. Oh, that's right. Oh, that's right. We have the baby's first sounds. It's beautiful. Oh, do you remember? This brought a tear to Terry's eye. Nah, she screamed. It was loud. No, the baby. That's what I mean. Yeah. Both were screaming. It was like, both Everyone's of you. screaming. <laughs> hey, all it. y'all, can you keep it down? And then like the, to ni- to the nine nurses were in there yelling at people and doctors. And you're like, ah, everyone's yelling. Yeah, that's an intense moment. I sort of backed away and they go, no, 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 no. You got to get up here. I'm like, <laughs> All right. It's you, it's such a beautiful moment, but I remember no, it. No, I, not really. Yeah. They, no. Well, it is. No. <laughs> once you're past all the blood and gore. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, right? And then once your baby's head is back to normal and they've actually got some color right. other than purple, then you're like, oh, this is a beautiful moment. Yeah, so the next day, it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. But then I remember leaving thinking, I never want to do that again. You know what I mean? Well, it's, no. it's so shocking. It's like yeah. it's jarring. And my wife was, by the way, was saying the exact same thing. Well, I was I was talking about my your experience, emotions and feelings, and that my wife looked at me and told me to shut up. Did she? <laughs> she went through something a little bit more traumatic. Yeah, than she's I did. had a hard. Yeah, time. you had a pretty rough match. Yeah. I really so did. I don't blame you. It's hard. 
I actually loved it. And my for some reason, my wife did too because she wanted more. I mm. used to video – when you're videoing the birth, I'd never video the birth. I'd video my wife's face. Yes. Because I wanted her to remember the pain. Just remember this moment. Wow. But she kept forgetting. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then well, she'd want another one. Yeah. And then another one. And then another one. Six times. Hmm. <laughs> now we're still paying for it. That's it. Uh, we'll get to all that fun. Little tax havens. Little tax havens. Little write-offs. Um, plus, the headlines, of course, we'll get to. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? Donald Trump expected to order the reinstitution of waterboarding as a torture method previously used by CIA interrogators. The newly inaugurated president said he heard from high-level intelligence sources that it, quote, absolutely works. However, <laughs> he would not name those experts as the overwhelming preponderance of experts say that torture does not work. The people you're torturing tend to tell you what you want to hear so you'll stop hurting them. Well, yeah, but you're still in custody, so then they can come back. Well, they'll stop, yeah. Trump's own Secretary of Defense, James Mad Dog Mattis, is an adamant opponent to torture. He says he could walk in, sit down, and have a conversation, get more better quality information out of the person. By the way, this is another thing that we don't talk about. This is not something the president usually says, go waterboard. Right. But, yeah. As you said at the beginning of the, the show, this is just a distraction. In fact, we ought, to make, we ought to be making our list. I'm going to keep making the list. Aren't, aren't they threatening them with Nickelback now? Yeah. Okay, bring on the radio. Hours after President Trump signed an executive order directing federal funds uh, to the building of a U.S.-Mexico border wall, Mexican President Enrique Peña Nieto said his country absolutely would not pay for it. Trump has said several times Mexico will reimburse the U.S. 100% for the wall's cost. But the president of Mexico said he regrets and disapproves of Trump's rush to build a barrier. He goes, I've said it time and time again, Mexico will not pay for the wall. Uh, Nieto is scheduled for a visit in D.C. January 31st. Last night he said he was thinking about canceling it. Trump said that this morning, as we've just talked about. So I'm thinking this meeting will not happen. Yeah. Or maybe it will. Who knows? What do you believe? What he says? Depends on the day. Yeah. Uh, White House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence issued a statement Wednesday announcing plans to undertake an assessment of Russian activities and intentions in recent U.S. elections. The committee plans to look into Russian cyber activity, counterintelligence concerns, uh, potentially linking Russia to campaign officials, how the U.S. government responded to information about the hacks and possible leaks of classified information. So another committee and more stuff. Uh, And finally, McDonald's. Yeah. They have two new versions of the Big Mac. Why? Because. It's called a Mac Junior and a Grand Mac. So a smaller version and a bigger oh. version. That's cute. To celebrate this, at participating locations, they're giving away 10,000 bottles of Big Mac sauce. Ooh. So you can take that home and put it on, you know, French toast or whatever. <laughs> put that on your sandwich. So depending on the location... They'll have it there. but you can, And they say the reason they want a bigger and a smaller Big Mac is an effort to attract millennials to their stores. But a recent survey they, they did uh, in a memo leaked from the company estimated that around a fifth of millennials had never had a Big Mac before. What? Yeah. The Big Mac they was – intoxicate America with their, their was, food. The Big Mac was my big moment. It was my, um, oh, yeah. my coming out party. That's where I knew I was a man. What age? 25? I was probably 10. Oh, I was 8. I had my own – well, you were bigger than me yeah. back then. <laughs> I was um, bigger than most. Uh, but I had my a Big Mac combo. 
Yeah. And this was pre-combo days. This is when you had to make up your own combo because yeah. they didn't have a combo. Oh, that's where, that's where they get you. Yeah. It was my graduation from a Happy Meal yeah. to adult food. And that's what I remember my mom, deal. I remember I vividly her saying, you now cost me twice as much. <laughs> You're right. You're welcome. I'm like, thank you, mom. <laughs> and But I ate the Big Mac and I remember being stuffed. Oh, I was so full. Right. But you looked at it, it was huge, oh, it was, I was tall, so, manly. so much food there. And my sisters looked at me like I was different. Like, you did it, boy. I'm so proud of you. Today you're a man. You big stud. They're calling it the Grand Mac. Yeah, it's the the bigger Big Mac. And that brings back a memory because my my grandma was a McFarland, Hmm. so we called her Grandma Mac. Wow. So now she's like a Grand Mac. Hopefully you didn't call her Big Mac, though. No, Big Mac. Well, I didn't. She smacked me. Oh, yeah. Then we called her Big Smack. Hmm. Those were good memories. (laughs) Good old Grandma. No, she'd never hit anybody. Beautiful woman. Um, so much to talk about. This Again, I'm running now a new Trump's daily distraction list. Yes. Uh, so far, the crowd at the inauguration, voter fraud. These are the ones he's brought up and have become news stories just in the last week. Waterboarding, go for it, and sanctuary cities, and, uh, and Mexico is going to pay for the wall again. Now, we just looked up. We, the United States pays Mexico in – this was in 2012 – about $200 million in subsidies. About 90 of that goes to the military yep. in Mexico. So wouldn't it make sense that Mexico is going to pay one way or another? Why don't you just – I mean, by the way, and should Mexico even pay, right? Because it's a wall between two – and you had this experience. When your neighbor wanted to put a fence up, yeah. he didn't just expect you to pay. No. He – Wanted to split the cost. Yeah, we had a discussion. I went, yeah, sure, we'll split the cost because I needed a new fence also. Right. It's going to fall down. I mean, would you split the cost? Yeah. We, oh. went, we went halvesies on this fence. We tried that. Our neighbor said, well, get, tell us how much it's going to cost. And uh, we never heard from them again. We had yeah. neighbors ask I, us if, they wanted, if we wanted to pay, and we said no. And they said, oh. And they just put it up themselves. Yeah. And you didn't talk to them again? Yeah, we haven't talked to them forever, <laughs> for years. <laughs> So should Mexico have to pay at all? And, th- and everyone would say, well, yeah, because it's the Mexicans that are coming across here. But, you know, good neighbors. Hmm. We should all pay. So at some, there's also a talk of a border tax. If anyone coming in the, in the state, in the United States from Mexico, they pay a toll. You just pay a toll. And eventually that gets the wall paid for. Uh, are you an American or are you um, from Mexico? I'm a Mexican. Okay, that'll be seven hundred dollars. The problem is the wall is looking at between eight and fourteen million dollars, or fourteen billion. Yeah, fourteen billion. It's like fourteen million dollars a mile. Yeah, and there's about and nearly two thousand miles needed. Speaker of the House Paul Ryan, he said yesterday, we'll cover it. Honestly, it's it's symbolic, really, because we're going to we're going to stop more of illegal immigration by just managing visas better. Do you think those tolls would go both ways? Like if I wanted to go down to Tijuana? That would be how they would uh, react probably. Well, except maybe. And that's how they'll – so then the Americans are going to pay. Yeah. Except <laughs> they also need people to go to Tijuana. They do. That's how right. Tijuana exists. And have you been to Tijuana? Not uh, – no. I spent a week there one day and it was fantastic. Mm-hmm. I really – I lived – I actually spent three days there and it was incredible. I mean, not Tijuana. It was further south. Rosarito, I think it was. Chicklets? No, not Rosarito. Did you get any chicklets? 
No, didn't go there. Um, headlines. Any other I things we got to cover? I mentioned The Apprentice. There's a story that um, Trump's final season as host of The Apprentice. It's yeah. Nielsen numbers, so the ratings had fallen dramatically. Uh, this is from a CNN article last night I was reading. Nevertheless, Trump uh, continued to proclaim the series as the number one show on TV as late as January 2015 when he appeared at a uh, television critics association tour to promote the new season. At the time, it ranked 40th. So he's saying it's number one. It was 40th, actually. Uh, but NBC executives also spoke to Trump's uh, about his persistence in saying his show was number one long after the numbers had declined. In his mind, if you were number one once, you were number one always. Oh, duh. So the, uh, Jeff Gaspin, who oversaw reality programming for NBC at the time, uh, said that uh, there was no point in correcting Trump because the goal was to keep him happy and willing to perform and appear on the network. Right. Not if you're number one or not. So well, uh, by the way, I'm a best-selling author. Allegedly, sure. No, See, I've never sold. I mean, I'm the best seller I've ever been. Yeah, I would, yeah. I would think NBC would not want to bring attention to their low ratings. Well, it, it's it's worth bringing up your low ratings if you could take Trump down a notch. Uh, I don't think they can afford a, another well, hit. When you walk into a bunch of into a meeting with a bunch of TV critics and you say you're number one, they all know you're forty. Right, but you're up there saying you're number one, and so then the question is to the network: Why don't you tell him? What do you want us to say? <laughs> well, I think what he says, he doesn't probably say it present tense. He wasn't he saying, "I, well, it's I, I was like number one." Everyone who has a New York Times bestseller, yeah. right? Then every book they ever make, right. New York Times bestseller, That's even right. though that book never came close. Uh, Pulitzer, yeah, same thing. Uh, president of the United States, yeah. We still call people president. You're not the president. We don't call him ex-president. So I think Trump kind of operates on those yeah. those levels. Promotion. It's all promotion. Yeah. It's all about the promotion. Um, Louisiana woman delivers a 14-pound baby. This goes in the category of, aren't you glad you don't, you're not having a baby? Oh, you guys are, Jeff. Sorry. <laughs> not to be rude. A Louisiana mother thought she might be pregnant with twins, but it turned out to be one very, very, very large baby. Laquina Hunter Grover said that her first two kids weighed in a little over seven pounds when they were born. Her third child was 11.9 pounds. But when she became pregnant with her fourth child, she didn't know what to expect. People would come up to me and say, oh, I think that's twins, which is so rude, or even triplets. Actually, I'm not even pregnant. Um, Maybe there's another baby hiding behind the one you've got in there. Grover said, but there was just one baby who weighed in at 14 pounds. When he was born, he was 14 pounds, one ounce. I remember the nurse came running back, and when she told me that, I swear uh, that uh, I had not been on the gurney already. I would have passed right out right there when she said that. 14 pounds, one ounce. Um, Loyalty Adonis Grover was born December 6th after spending uh, 27 days in NICU. Loyalty is finally home with his mother. So congratulations to Laquina and the new uh, baby boy, Loyalty. By the way, 15, uh, who now weighs 15 pounds, measures two feet in height. We sent um, uh, one of our producers there to capture some audio from, I guess, is this Jeff, are these, are these the first sounds? Uh, I think they were a little later. It may have been a little too uh, invasive. Yeah, you didn't want to get it right yeah. then. But uh, this this is uh, just a little audio of the beautiful baby boy. It's beautiful. 
Was that like a little burp at the yeah, end I think or something? A burp oh. at the end. Hmm. Uh, don't you love the sound of a baby? That just gets me choked up. Yeah, you're crying, dude. <laughs> but you you got a baby coming soon. Mm-hmm. Hope it sounds like that. If it's that big, then I know for sure that we're done. My wife will say never again. <laughs> you know what? I'll bet you bucks if it makes sound like that, you are done. That is a that's a cute baby boy. Congratulations to the Grovers. That sounded a bit bite like Grover. That baby did. Good stuff, folks. When we come back, we're going to talk uh, to a professor about how to predict a baby's first word. Pretty interesting information. Getting you uh, a little informed about these newborns. Stick with us. Whether it's mama, baba, or dada, parents tend to place a lot of weight on a baby's first words. It is, after all, miraculous that infants eventually make the connection between sounds they hear and the meanings behind them. Dr. Linda Smith of Indiana University Studies Infant Development, in a recent study of hers, might help you predict what your baby's first words might be. Dr. Smith, thanks for being with us today. Oh, thank you for having me. This is um, this is always fun, and we joke about it around our house because my uh, my grandbaby, she's how old now? She's a year, a little older, over a year, but she'll pretty much it seems like um, say whatever the last words that are said to her. So we'll say, "Do you like Mama or Dada more?" And she usually will say, "Dada." But um, and then it makes Dad feel really good. But these first words matter. What are you finding out about what what drives the first words they say? Okay, I want to talk about two things here. My own work is about what they see, but I think that for the case of this Mama or Dada example, if you take what children know about his words as what they say, mm. then the big limit on what they say is the muscles of their mouth and the forming of that motor plan to put the tongue and lips in the right place. And so there are inside us connections between what we hear and what we do with our mouth. And so if you hear dada last, it's going to be a stronger motor command to come out and you'll get dada out. Mm. But a lot of it has to do with what your mouth. But it's what your mouth can do, right? Yeah, it's about your ear to mouth. Is it so when you do this, how, how do you study this with, with these infants? Well, I don't actually study the word productions, the sound properties. I study um, what their visual world is like. So, why, you know, we, there's certain words that babies have, right? They're going to say bottle, they're going to say mama, they're going to um, say maybe kitty if they have a cat. Mm. They do that all about 12 months of age. But here's what's interesting. Before that, eight, nine months, they actually understand a lot of the words you say, particularly common object names. How do we know this? Because people put babies in a laboratory, they put them in front of a big white screen, they put a picture of a dog on it and a picture of a chair on it, and they say, chair, Hmm. chair, and babies look to the chair. Interesting. So they're getting Long it. before they say anything. Yeah. Is it um, – because I, I guess it's they're, – they're learning before they can actually say it. 
before the mouth can make those sounds. Yeah. Is, I guess which is true with a lot of language, isn't it? Because I, I was fluent in Spanish, and I'm not anymore probably, but um, I, I, I knew a lot more in my head than I could, than I could get out of my mouth. Absolutely correct. It's not easy. The mouthpark's not easy. Mm-mm. Is it it's like any motor skill? Needs practice, like playing tennis. Is 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 it inherited? Is it, it like would my child inherit my abilities vocally and verbally? Mm, what do you mean by your abilities? Well, like so, does my mouth is. It, are there certain words that are easier for some to say than others, or is it just a, is it just a skill that once you've learned, everyone's got the same skill? No, people are better and worse. It's just like playing tennis or walking or running. It's like any motor skill. People have different shaped mouths. They have slightly different tongues. They have to find, you know, there's nothing I could do ever that's going to make me play basketball like Michael Jordan. Huh, right. Okay? Nothing. Okay. <laughs> no matter how no matter hard how you hard try. I work. Yeah. You have to, I'm five one. Okay. I got a lot. There's a lot about my body <laughs> very different from that. Yeah. Not a chance. Okay. So every baby has got to find how to make those sounds. Okay. Mm. And there's really good connections between the ear and the mouth that what they hear that they try to say and then they can hear themselves say it. But it is not an easy muscle. Uh, it's not as easy. Uh, muscle task to do. It's actually very hard. They they mostly do it, and they get pretty good, but that, it's not an easy task. They often know more and are thinking way more than their mouth can put out. And one of the things I, I think you're really pointing out, too, is the importance of the visual cues and clues. Um, so as parents, we could probably pay more attention to what they're looking at to get a sign of if they're understanding us. Yes, and so here's just, there's a couple of really interesting pointers here to parents. So what we have been doing, unlike most people who study the sound or word part of things, what we have been doing is trying to understand how the visual world supports learning, the things they see, because for those very first words, babies, when someone says cat, the only way they can figure out what a cat is is by looking at a cat when somebody says the word. So we have been putting head cameras on babies in the home, um, babies from three weeks up to two years of age, and we have been studying what their visual worlds are like. What are the regularities in those visual worlds hmm. that might support word learning? And there is a bunch of interesting things here. One of them is that when babies begin to sit stably, they will often pick up and hold objects. This we found out through both experiments and observation that this is a wonderful moment for learning object names because what it does is it takes that one object out of the clutter of people's messy living rooms, houses, whatever, and brings it forward, okay? So it's dominating the child's view. It's often stable in the child's view. The child's clearly interested in it. And we found that if parents name objects when their children are holding them, and looking at them, this is, you know, 8, 9, 10, 12, 14, 16 months of age, these babies will learn those object names better. And parents who hmm. are more responsive to those cues have children whose vocabularies rise faster. So that's the parent. Once the baby's holding an object or, or uh, I mean, I guess you could even point or, or show an object, but the, the parent, if the parent would name the object, say it out loud, the baby's vocabulary over time will go up faster. Pointing and showing help 
but they're not as good as the baby holding. Holding the object. The baby holding stabilizes the baby's head and interest. When you mm. hold up an object, the baby may look away, but there's something about the whole baby's body. When they're holding an object, they stabilize the tension on it. They attend longer. Oh, that's great. So, so they're holding. You know, the physical 3D play of objects in the world has huge effects on the visual, on what visual properties and visual attention are like. So I would say put your baby on the floor with toys. Notice when he's holding objects, you don't have to round the clock, but yeah. periodically, and name that object for the child. Well, all of a sudden, it, it shows you the power of a book. I mean, if the baby's holding the book and they're in the book, they're looking at an object, it, does it have the same effect? I think it does. This is one of the questions we are really interested in. Because what do books do? They also stabilize your visual world. If yeah. you're sitting on mom's lap and they're holding a book in front of you, that object is usually clear and it's stable in front of you for a while. So books, there's the 3D world, which I was talking about, sitting and holding objects. But books, we know books, even for quite young babies, are good. And one of our hypotheses, I don't quite have the data on this yet, is that books, but I bet it's true, that books are helping visually as well. Man, and but but then there's the connection of and my wife has done it I think brilliantly. She's always talking to the baby, and and pointing out and, let, and like when they are holding it, she's talking about what it is and and stating it by name. I mean, it's a powerful parent. I guess is it? It seems fairly intuitive. I, I think many parents do this um, quite uh, naturally. That it seems a very natural thing to do. Well, my baby's interested in that. Let me talk to him about it. But, it's, but the, I think somebody, some of the interesting things about these things that we found about the visual world, though, is that much of it depends both on the baby's own body, getting safely holding objects, and on parents' responses to those behaviors. So there are certain children, particularly those developing with certain kinds of um, uh, developmental disabilities, both motor and um, children with ASD, with autism, for example, often have... Um, uh, slightly odd sensory motor timings off a little bit sensory mm. motor coordination and if these things influence um, how the visual world is structured for the child sure. whether the ball comes out of the clutter on the floor into a nice good view um, then um, it, it can influence um, there's a really I think a lot of potential for making a difference in children's lives because if it really is about stabilizing how the body and the kids' own motor actions as they begin to sit and play with their hands with objects, do stuff with objects, is playing a role in creating what you see. That is. That the name's hooked to, that we yeah. have a way to go in and help them. But it, early, it, I think. Well, and it makes so much sense that to think, because really it's about focus, it sounds like, and yeah, having focus. a. That's ha- a perfectly good way. Right? Having a stable visual focus on something allows you to to probably, I guess, conceptualize it, learn it, experience it, but which is why if you're a little shaky in stability, you're not going to be focused on any one thing at any one time. So, yeah, the fancy word we use as developmental psychologists is sustained attention. Mm. Focus is exactly. That's great. Exactly. Is, and, and so that would say, too, that uh, maybe if your child um, isn't sitting up yet, then would they be less inclined to be able to get that sustained attention there there are people working on that issue i have a um a friend who's at the university of delaware you might actually talk to him sometime his name is cole galloway and he works with children with 
somewhat serious motor deficits, and he actually builds little exoskeletons for them. Oh, really? So they can, so they can sit up early and, and manipulate objects if they have poor um, tone control. And it actually does make a difference, both in their learning object names and in their social interactions. It's interesting. It's a little push up, a little bump up. Yeah. Um, it's the connection, though, I guess, between the eyes and the hands. And the stability of the head. Yeah, and, and, and the folk and the ability to stay, have sustained yeah. attention. Is, yep. um, so I, I guess as parents, we, do, we, do, we want to, do we want to kind of exercise with it? Do we want to work our kids to be able to sit up more? Do we want, I mean, is that something you should push or is it just to happen developmentally when they're ready? Okay, so that, I have strong opinions on this and I'm just going to give them to you, okay? Yeah, I do. So, <laughs> I'm one of these people who really believes in tummy time. And all these parents out there know that the doctors are always saying tummy time, your pediatricians tummy time. I really believe in tummy time. And let me tell you why. So back in the day, I'm, I'm a very senior professor. Um, so I've been teaching for a long time. But back when I was a young assistant professor and you lectured in a developmental class, you would use these milestones for sitting and walking. We now have to make all those milestones later. I would never say that your baby's going to sit up at seven months. Mm. stably and it's going to walk at 12 months which is what we always said because given the um, back to sleep which is really the good things about SIF, okay, about SIF, about seven infant death everybody's supposed to keep their baby on their back right? sleeping on their back okay so everybody does that and that is good but what it has meant is babies are less time on their tummy and when they're on their tummies when they push up and lift their heads and do all those kinds of things that you do in the gym. Yeah. Strengthen your trunk, okay? And so babies are now much, much later in the strengthening of their trunks. And that trunk control, a strong, you know, core, core. is what you need to sit up safely and not fall over. Like, little babies, can you can prop them up, but if they reach for something to play with it, they might tumble, okay? We need that trunk control to not do that, okay? All right. So that trunk control ends up being really important for sitting stably. It ends up being really important for sustained attention. And being able to sit stably is really important for that kind of back-and-forth chat between mom and baby or granddad and baby that is fostering all this development. It's really important for toy play and walk, mm. figuring out the physical world works. It's really important. And I don't think sitting the baby in a pumpkin seat and having yeah. things that limits their ability to reach play and do interesting things with objects. Yeah. So, yep, I think they need to put them on the floor from day one on their stomach and give them tummy time. Yeah, and and, and strengthen that core, and it and it does at least allow them to have inf- have these toys and these these objects in front of them versus just lounging back. I mean, they'll be in lazy boys the rest of their lives. They don't need to start that way. We'll take a break and come back, continue the discussion with Dr. Linda Smith about, you know, the early development of uh, your child's language. And who would have thunk it was so deeply connected to their sight and to their ability to sustain attention and focus on something? Just simply sitting up is the beginning of communication. Powerful stuff. Stick with us. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. The 
Welcome back. We're joined uh, by Dr. Linda Smith. Dr. Smith is a professor of psychology and cognitive science at Indiana University, and um, she is walking us through uh, some of the important points of your baby's first words. Would you believe it? They need sitting up helps immensely because it allows them to create a sustained attention, a sustained focus. And once they're sitting stable, then you put an object in their hands and all of a sudden they can they'll they'll focus on it at a deeper level they'll retain especially if you as a parent are talking about the object or or labeling and naming the object it improves their ability to then eventually verbalize have i got that accurate dr smith yes you have absolutely got that accurate is it so? So some of this um, again, like the tummy time, is I think a really important thing. We were just talking about it in the break because it's it is like an exercise. You're trying to build their core, and some babies might naturally not like that. Um, but then, like you were saying too, the science has been going back and forth about how to have these kids sleep, how to put them on their back. Sleep. I mean, it, just in the many years we've had our kids. We've been told back, sleep them on their back, on their side, on the back again. Um, and then, interestingly, ours always slept better on their belly. Yeah, mine too, I have to say. Who do you believe? But, you know, my children are now grown, and I have grandchildren, and they're doing what their pediatricians say, which is put them on the back. And the fifth desk have plummeted since mm. these new um, instructions. So That's good. Stick not, with it. I will not question that. Yeah. But, I'll put it, even though my kids did it differently when I raised them because we had different advice. But I would, so I would do what your pediatricians say because the sudden deaths have, the sudden infant deaths have really plummeted. That's great. And um, that is good. And But I think in addition to that, put them on their tummy. One thing I thought I would mention to you in case any of your readers have children or grandchildren with Down syndrome. Yeah. So Down syndrome, they have lax muscles. And any of those people now whose children have, um, who have uh, children with Down syndrome, what they do now is they start physical therapy for these kids early, little sit-ups, little mm. weight training, because, again, pushing that development forward, getting them to maximize all they can do, okay? Yeah. Quite a bit. If you start early, the motor system's in there, okay? You can't separate our minds from our body because this is where the head camera, I know I'm going on and on, but I'm so excited. That's about good. That's camera. great. <laughs> you put these head cameras on, their ba- on the babies, and you see... But their worlds are, one, very different. Their visual worlds are very different from ours. It's like being able to fly on the wall to your child's life. And two, what their visual worlds are like changes dramatically with motor development. With little tiny babies, what do little tiny babies see? Okay? They see what you put in front of their face or where you plop them down. Okay? But as babies get older and can do more, when they crawl, they put, you know, their eyes are on their heads, their heads are on their bodies. What they do with their bodies determines what they see. They can stick those heads under beds. They can stick those heads. <laughs> you know what I mean? They, and they actually, we know that, in fact, crawling begins to create certain kind of optic flow, the patterns of the rug moving by you, which is actually really critical to certain kinds of na- the development of spatial abilities and hmm. certain kinds of navigation skills in the brain. It's just a natural event for humans. Once you start to crawl, you get this visual input of movement, of stuff moving, and, you know, it oh. helps, uh, helps wire the brain up. But they get a very different view. And then when they sit stably to play with objects, they get a very different view of objects. And even when you show them things, okay, it is, has its own purposes. And then, of course, when they run around, 
and see other kids or as they get older stop walking that again creates a whole different visual environment for them and so their visual worlds change as their bodies change it's these I wish you were a TV show. I would show you these head camera images. They are, you can actually find them on my website if you want, which is... Um, Boy, that's... W, yeah, which yeah, is www.iub.edu slash tilde cogdeb. T-I-L... Okay. No, the tilde is a little tilde Oh, sign. the tilde sign. Okay. Yeah. Dot confab. Print it out. That would help you. Yeah. Well, what we'll do is we'll um, if we'll go find it and we'll put it up on our Twitter page as well, so people can go track this. Okay. You, as you were talking about it, um, so as we were babysitting and 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 tending our grandbaby, she's at this stage of crawling everywhere, and every time, so we'd have her sitting, playing with an object, engaging her. Then she'd see the stairs and she's like, okay, I got to get over there. And she'd then climb over, she'd walk over there. But I'm imagining if I had the head camera on and I could see what she's trying to do is just experience more of the world. She's trying to get, she's curious. Is that what this is? And, yeah. and, and, and if I could see what she's seeing, but instead it's just an annoyance. Like just come back and keep looking at these same four things. But they, they they do they want to have they want to see more and experience more. That's right, and they, they have this sense of mastery and sense of discovery. Um, and you wouldn't really think does. it's tied to verbal, but it is. But it is. So what we have shown is that we've shown it in both at home studies and in lab studies, which are more controlled. That the regularities and the structure in these visual scenes of what they're showing themselves. Okay. And what they're doing, you know, when they, with their hands creating these visual scenes is absolutely key to the words they learn first. So we're really kind of, in the work I'm doing, looking at babies breaking into language from that nine-month to just under two-year range when they first start really making a move on language. Mm. I think it's, it's fantastic. And um, just maybe give us... Uh, a little advice as we let you go. What what should we be doing as parents? I guess uh, doing what we can to help stabilize their core, but then get them to sit up when they I mean, when they're ready. Let them sit up. What else should we be doing as parents to facilitate this? You know, I don't think you need as a parent to be a hundred percent on your child. That is, they can play alone. They can all that good stuff. But I do think that for optimal development. Every baby needs some one-on-one time in play, reading a book a couple times a day. Hmm. Okay? These can be 10 or 15-minute ventures. It doesn't, you know what I mean? But yeah. they're, you're noticing what they're doing, and you're providing them with encouragement and information about it. Okay? I love um, that. You know, really, I think that's the optimal thing for babies this age. What would you say about um, what would you say about technology? So, because I, you know, that seems I'm, to be robbing some of the experience. I'm not anti it. Okay, I think that there's a lot of really interesting evidence, and this might be another cool thing to put on the show that for older children. These kind of iPad, phone apps, games have some positive consequences in training attention in ways that may be related to um, 
reading and math and doing those kinds of things. And they're, it's, they're much better for you actually than passively watching television. Hmm. A lot of, there's a lot of evidence on this, okay? But I think for little babies, children under three, they really need, they were meant to learn in a 3D world using their whole body. Yeah. And um, I think I would not distort that too much. Do I think it's a horrible thing to give your two-year-old an iPad on a plane trip? Nope. Go oh, right ahead. Yeah, if it keeps okay. them quiet. Whatever, and, whatever, yeah. whatever gets you there. You right. know what I mean? <laughs> because, but around the clock, probably not a good thing, but, you know, anything occasionally is not a bad thing. Yeah. Um, no. But I think the 3D world doing things with their body is... Zero to three is really very important. And it's and, and with a parent that's actively engaged. Appreciate it. Well done. Uh, and uh, Dr. Linda Smith, helping us understand our children even more. Boy, lucky to have them in the first place. Now, once they're here, let's, let's give them all we can, any advantage we can in life. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll give you some ways to stay warm in the winter. Well, for most of the people across the U.S. right now, the snow is coming down, uh, weather in all its crazy, ugly forms. It's tornadoes in the south, crazy stuff. At least here in Utah, uh, snow is piling up all over the neighborhoods, roads and parking lots. So how can we stay warm and stay healthy? Well, Caitlin Thomas is here with us this morning to share some new ways to to keep cozy this season if you uh, haven't been able to accomplish that yet. Hello. Yeah, did you hear my little sniffle? Yeah, was that you? So apparently, I need it. You got a little cold going on here? Got a little cold because I'm not staying warm enough. See, just so you know, when, when you put on a little more weight, like uh, me, mm. I, I'm warm <laughs> a lot. Oh, is that the secret? Yeah. Okay, that's what my dad says. Too. If you just have a little, I just like to have a little. I think it's just men. I just think men little, are just like uh, warmer. Uh, well, we are, for my sure. My dad's super warm. Maybe it's all the, like, the hair all over his body. Ugh. Yeah. Keeps it warmer. See, so just grow some hair on your back. <laughs> I'll work you. Gross. That sounds gross. Well, my problem is, is I was walking through campus the other day, and we were in the middle of a huge, like, Snow flurry. blizzard. Uh-huh. It was a big flurry. And I didn't have an umbrella, nor was I wearing a hood. Really? I was very underprepared for uh, the weather. You know, Leanna? Yeah. Leanna Tan, we were watching snowfall. It snowed, like, three or four inches in an hour. And she was wearing little slipper shoes. Yeah. Not, Without no. socks. Ooh, Leanna. Leanna. That's bad. It's totally bad. Well, so I came up with some ways, and I asked the internet. The internet helped me. The, did you talk to the internet? I talked to the internet, and then I also used my own brain. You know that I've been gifted. You got to come up with brain. some new ways. Good, good, good. Like well, first of all, to just, stay warm, just wear a hat. Mama said. I don't know what most your heat is. leaves through your head, right? I so don't know. wear a hat. Or apparently, if you turn on your ceiling fan in your house, the warm air rises to the ceiling. So run your fan on the lowest setting in a clockwise direction to push the warm air back down to where you can feel it. Doesn't it also supposedly redistribute the heat throughout the house? I guess. It's like it's a way so you don't have to have the heat on like as high or as long. Oh, interesting. That's not a bad idea. Yeah. And then switch between hot and cold water. Hot showers immediately warm you up, but cold showers improve blood circulation between your skin and organs. I'm going to stick with the hot. I'm going with hot. So there's that. Um, (laughs) This is my favorite one that I found. Block drafts, cold drafts with a pool noodle. 
So Ooh. keep heat in and cold out by cutting a pool noodle in half lengthwise, wrapping it in fabric, and sliding it under the door. That's a great idea. Yeah. We have a rice bag in front of our front door. Oh, do you really? Mm-hmm. You guys cooking oh, rice yeah. or something? Did you know that you can trick a locked thermostat? Not everyone has, like, so the kind that you don't have the passcode to. Right, so like right. the one here at BYU Radio. Not everyone has access to adjust the thermostat in their apartment or office. If that's the case, you just need to pull. You need to outsmart the device by making it think the room is colder than it is. Put ice near the thermostat and it'll that's adjust great, it. That is great. <laughs> Till maintenance comes around. Til maintenance What's comes going around? on in here? Sorry. Yeah. Uh, during the wintertime, it's a good idea to take off your normal curtains and put on warmer ones. Yeah, put on your winter curtains. Your winter curtains. You should have winter curtains. Aren't those the big furry ones? Yeah. You're supposed to replace thin curtains with heavier wool or fleece drapes. It's a lot of work. But open them on sunny day. Why don't you sunny just Why don't you just wear a coat? Yeah. Or why don't In we just... In my house, listen Did me, you I'm just sniffle anyways. again? <laughs> Got the little sniffles See? there. Hey, I'm going camping this weekend. Should I just wrap myself in a warm curtain? Just get yourself one of those insulated sleeping bags. You know what? He's going to need more than that. Mm. Get yourself well, a sedative. If you bake, you can bake all day long, and that'll warm up your house. So I know in the in the mountains. No, well, maybe you just bake over the fire all day. You know, just keep a fire going. There's bake not going to be day. a fire up there. I think we're going to hike up there and go to bed at like five o'clock to just be warm as soon as possible. But luckily, yeah. luckily, you're you're going with a bunch of adults that are safe, and it'll all be good. These are only tips to help you stay warm, like in your house. I don't really know how to help you. If you're putting yourself in the wilderness, I don't feel that bad for you. Like, what do you think about somebody that goes out in the middle of the wilderness in the middle of winter, freezing cold temperatures? I what? Think what? You're crazy. That's crazy. The coldest day of the winter so far, by the way. Why are you doing that? I said yes well, then when I was asked. Make He's a scout leader. Some homemade hand warmers. You can just. You can buy those cool ones, or you can radiate pride and self-sufficiency by making them yourself. Do you, All you need is two Ziploc bags, water, and calcium chloride ice melt pellets from the hardware store. Oh, there you go. Then you heat that up. You might want to take a lot of those. I would I would suggest it. Um, anything on your list about dealing with um, black toe? When uh, no. he loses his toe due to... to hypo- just cut it yeah. off. That's what Terry says. Okay. I'm not doing that for you, though, so... Good luck with that. Well, those are great uh, little How techniques. To stay warm this winter. Um, well, you know what? You missed the most obvious one. Just find a significant other and just cuddle up. That's not as easy as it sounds. I just hop in my hot tub. For some of us, that's really hard, Matt. Yeah. I've been on this campus for, this is three years now. I haven't had much luck yet, so. Well. The BYU I do thing's not really working in my favor. <laughs> no worky to BYU I do. Mm-mm. Well, um, okay, give me a minute. I'll get all on that right now. Get you married this weekend. <sighs> Staying warm, folks. There's many ways to do it. Stick with us. We'll give you uh, so many that uh, you'll be just sweating. We'll take a break, come back, give you more ideas, more information to live longer, love stronger. This is The Matt Townsend Show. The Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1 855 Chat BYU. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. 
Boy, oh boy. Happy Thursday to you. You've made it uh, through most of the week. Yes. One more day. It's been difficult. I think it's all been a trial, but we've all, we're all better for it. <laughs> what do you think? Yeah. Okay. I just hope I can make it through Friday night. Yeah. We're going to miss you. The show has been completely different and better with you on it. And may Godspeed and... Uh, I've had a good run. Hope you don't freeze. Just remember, Captain America frozen in the ice. He woke up 40 years later to a whole new world. So you might have that to look forward to. I think I would be, I would be devastated to wake up and you know find out that I, my kids are older than me. Mm. And my wife has either remarried or just forgotten about me. Yeah, oh, yeah. She'd be like, who? Oh, didn't he go missing on a camp when he went out in the snow camping? Uh, who does that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, We'll get to this in, in a bit, too, um, just in memory of Jeff Simpson. <laughs> Five surprising facts about Otzi. Do you know who Otzi is? No. He's the Iceman that was frozen in the Alps. Oh, right. I remember that. So but, we'll, we'll talk about Otzi. Didn't they find, like, copper tools mm-hmm. or something with him? Yeah. Didn't find any cool shields or anything. Iceman still has living relatives. Val Kilmer? <laughs> Genetic, genetically, they've been able to prove that people are offspring oh, okay. of Iceman. Right, right. We'll get to all this fun he stuff. He was great in that, by the way. Val Kilmer? Yeah. I think it's a different Iceman. Oh. See, I get that mixed up with Encino Man, which was a completely different premise. Brendan Fraser? He was great in that. They found him in a was it they dig, they're digging a pool and they found a Neanderthal buried in yeah, LA well, County? Yeah. By the way, Otzi was a 5,300-year-old corpse huh. that turned up on the mountain border between Austria and Italy in 1991. That's a great game, too. He was the ice mummy. You ever played Otzi? Oh, Otzi! Yeah, that was a good game. Um, we'll get to all that fun. Plus, a Florida man, by the way, arrested for breaking into jail because mm. he wanted to hang out with his friends. We'll have a report on that as well. Plus, um, we'll be... I think it's a they're, they're making a movie out of it. Are they? Yeah. So I, we've got a little bit of a teaser for that. Hollywood is desperate for movies. Desperate for movies. We'll also be talking about why children are so bad at hiding. It's really fascinating about because they hide their eyes. Yes. Yeah. They're right in the middle of the room and they just cover their face. You're like, yeah. It's like we still see you. Boy, kids. Clueless. And then, they, and then they get mad when you find them immediately. Yeah. Dad. You were peeking. I'm like, well, no. <laughs> so we'll be talking with a true blue professional about, uh, you know, why the kids do what they do, those crazy hiding games they play, and why it's so important to their development. Plus, um, we'll be visiting with our good friends from BYU Sports Nation, do a hero story, and an in-depth view of Otzi the Iceman, hmm. soon to be played by Jeff Simpson, the yes. ice uh, scouter. This is pretty morbid. Oh, yeah. You do realize that, I mean, I don't... I don't really have any wood to knock on around here. Right. That's why we've removed all the wood from the building. But first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the rest of the country? President Trump today will speak to House and Senate Republicans at the GOP's annual policy retreat, the first retreat in a decade where the GOP controls both houses of Congress and the White House. Vice President Mike Pence will also address the congressional Republicans as well as British Prime Minister Theresa May, marking the first time a foreign head of government appears 
uh, has appeared at a GOP retreat. House Speaker Paul Ryan lays out an ambitious list of policies for Trump's first 200 days. You've heard of the 100 days. Oh, yeah. Now the 200 days. Including a bill to repeal the Affordable Care Act by March and a total overhaul of the U.S. US tax code by midsummer. Wow. It's kind of ambitious. That is. Yeah. Plus special funding for Trump's $14 billion Mexico border wall and the infrastructure bill. So I wonder if that's kind of the same or different. I'm not mm-hmm. sure. Is that the infrastructure bill? We'll see what happens. Shortly after signing two executive orders on Immigration Wednesday, President Donald Trump vowed to get the bad ones out. The day out, the day is over when they can stay in our country and wreak havoc, Trump said while speaking at the Department of Homeland Security about his plans to crack down on immigration. We are going to get them out and get them out fast, Trump said. He was doing he said he was doing this because of his duty to protect the lives of American people and insisted that when it comes to public safety, there's no place for politics. <laughs> when it comes to public safety, no place for politics. Right. Good. It's a new slogan for it's MSNBC. Put or that something. on a bumper sticker. Uh, newly appointed CIA director Mike Pompeo was reportedly blindsided by a draft executive order that circled today, which could allow for intelligence agencies to begin waterboarding again at newly opened, quote, black sites overseas. This apparently is a Mitt Romney-era plan that they had in the works that never got implemented. Oh, wow. President Trump reiterated on an interview with ABC News that he believes torture works. Pompeo was reportedly never consulted about the executive order and was not aware that it was even existed until the dra- of the draft until it was disclosed by the New York Times on Wednesday. White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer later alleged that it was not a White House document. Join the CIA. We torture people. Is this going to bring people into the CIA? I don't know, because apparently it really caused problems before, yeah. if we believe what was reported Again, before. the CIA was known for being secretive. Yes. So even if they wanted to do all of this, you'd think they'd just be doing it quietly at right. the administration. Right out in the open. Yeah. Finally, Serena Williams. Yes. One went away from a record 23rd Grand Slam title after setting up an all-Williams final at the Australian Open. Holy cow. Now the only it's person standing between her and her uh, and a win is her older sister, Venus. She is my toughest opponent. Nobody has ever beaten me as much as Venus has, Serena says. Well, yeah, or they've... beaten me up. I just feel like no matter what happens, we've won. The 36-year-old Venus Williams is back at the Grand Slam final for the first time since Wimbledon in 2009. Her first Australian since 2003 when she lost to her sister, in the previous only all-Williams title. They described the last meeting in 2003 as a battle royale. Battle royale! But can't you just see Thanksgiving dinner at the Williams home Yeah. if Venus does win Serena? Right. Like, you couldn't give me one more, Venus? You couldn't give me one more? Yeah. Just give me one more. By the way, if you want to watch the Australian Open, 3.30 Eastern a.m. on Saturday. Uh, Interesting thing my son is getting up at 320 um to go do a count of the homeless people okay for, for school assignment and my friend jeff simpson will be just going to bed or waking up restlessly because it's so cold <laughs> this will be the soundtrack of my weekend this will be really good will i survive you never know so why are we teasing Jeff? Because Jeff uh, is a volunteer in the scouting program, and he has chosen to go with some 16-year-old scouts. Agreed. To, to what agreed they, to. I, I think they're calling it. Not food. chosen. He has agreed to, under um, 
duress. Was there? Were you under duress? Or at least mine. Hopefully, I won't be underdressed. Okay. He's going to be in for a really long, cold weekend. Oof. He will be going with these young men, 16-year-olds, which what could be more fun than that, and then uh, walking in uh, a mile or two to camp Man. in the middle of the snow. But I found out on the way back we'll be sledding down the hill, so we won't have to hike back. So you're going to hike up a hill if in the snow. If we're still alive, <laughs> oh. did they, did we'll they, sled down. Okay, hold on. Let's be real. And if we're not alive, they'll just sled the corpse down. Well, or ride you down. Or, you'll be an yeah, icicle. search and rescue will be riding you down in a toboggan. I'll watch the news while they're thawing you out. And it reminded me of this uh, this man that it's, they call Otzi, which was a man frozen to death, fifty three hundred years old, and he was found in nineteen ninety one frozen. Not well, we don't know. He may have died before. I don't know that he yeah. froze to death. No, but he's but been they found him in, yeah, in an ice block. And that's how he's been preserved is he's in the ice. And he actually – the rendering they have of the man, it does remind me of Jeff a little bit. I mean don't you think – he has the same yeah. the same bow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Lack of general muscle tone. No, this guy's ripped. Uh, he's ripped. Excuse me. <laughs> I but, mean I'm ripped. Excuse me. Um, but here, here's a little thing, a few things. Uh, uh, Otzi, by the way, still has um, – they have found out of 3,500 people they tested, 19 genetic relatives are still living in Australia. Or, I mean, sorry, Austria. Australia. Austria. Wow. Uh, here's some other facts about them that well, I think will be important for you to know because this might help you get through the big trip. Just think okay? of the inheritance. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, he had several health issues. Doesn't um, apply to me. Well, may. He had worn joints, hardened arteries, gallstones, and a nasty growth on his little toe. Oh, wow. Which they believe may have been frostbite. Mmm. So keep your toes cozy. He had a black toe. Um, furthermore, Iceman's gut contained eggs of parasitic worms. Uh, he likely had Lyme's disease. Mm. A lot of ticks out there. And it was a wonderful time of to live back then, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. And I'm taking cup of noodle, so that might be the start of all that. You, I think you already have a huge advantage. He did have advanced gum disease and tooth decay. You don't have any uh, of these problems. Brush your teeth. Um, it's easy. Oh, and he also had a fresh arrow wound to his shoulder. Ooh. So watch out for people out there with a bow. Um, this uh, Otzi also had some physical ailments, including he lacked his wisdom teeth. Do you have your wisdom teeth? No, they're out. Oh, just like Otzi. And a 12th pair of ribs he was missing. He's missing a whole set of ribs. Wow. The mountain man also sported a, ca- a caddish gap between his two front teeth. Your teeth look great. And, um, okay, I can't mention that. Apparently he was infertile. Oh, boy. Uh, ice. I mean, later in life. Yeah. Um, uh, Iceman was also inked. He had tattoos on his body. I don't think you have any tattoos. My brother does. Okay. Well, you're not taking him, are you? Again, irrelevant. And if you're wondering what you should eat on this ice journey um, so that you can last 5,300 years, he consumed pollen and goats. Huh. Apparently, his stomach contained 30 different types of pollen, which for me would kill me because I've got major allergies. <laughs> I the, could go for some goat. He, so so was, he, he apparently died in the spring or early summer because there was a lot of pollen out there. And he also had just digested a meal. He apparently had had a meal two hours before he, his grizzly end, uh, which was some meat from an ibex, which is a, a species of nimble-footed wild goat. So while you're on your trip, look for some goat. Hmm. 
Okay. I mean, keeping in, I think you need to keep in mind, we're going, you know, what, 20 minutes away? Right. And we're hiking one mile. But for some which reason. Which is like 15 yeah. minutes. Exactly. Except, let me just tell you, it will feel like eternity. It will, you will feel like you are alone in the woods in the freezer of some weird stranger building a manifesto. Maybe we should do a segment on which Netflix shows I should catch up on while I can't sleep. Because you're, you're going to take a device, huh? Is that what you're saying? You're going to take an electronic device. Jeffrey, uh, Otzi did not have an iPad. Just send us a text if you're not going to be here on Monday. Right, fact, but the goal is to survive, not to be like Otzi, right? In fact, Otzi was missing an eye. Huh. So. Very interesting. So he just had a pad. Just a pad over his eye. He had a tough life, it sounds like. He really did. And somebody took him out with an arrow. Yeah. Or he had a really bad accident. Wait, isn't that where they came up with Otzi Pops? Oh, I love Otzi Pops. Um, Florida man was arrested for breaking into jail to hang out with his friends. Sounds kind of stupid. Yeah, it's like he doesn't quite grasp the concept of prison. I just miss my buddies. Yeah. Uh, apparently, he broke into Indian River County Jail by driving his car into the front door and then trying to climb a fence, according to the police. So not subtle. No. <laughs> Patrick Rempe, 24, was arrested after he got caught in a fence's razor wire. Mm, yeah. Not good. He's trying to climb the wall. He admitted to deputies that he was under the influence. Yeah. No. And he wanted his friends uh, who were locked up in jail. I just miss him, man. I just miss him. Have you ever missed a friend? Everybody's so your best friend when you're under the influence. <laughs> That's right. Indian River County Sheriff Daryl Lohr said, fortunately, none of our deputies were injured and our facility was not compromised. So this is Hollywood's latest movie. They're going to take this story and make it into a movie? Well, they've been making these series of Breaking into prison movies that have been hugely successful. Well, I remember the breakout, breaking out of prison movies were big. Now they're making breaking in movies? Yeah. Haven't you been listening to any of the trailers that we've been playing on your show? Yeah, but I just thought that they were all one-offs, but apparently this is now a series. Oh, yeah. Okay. Each one of them says this is the sequel to... Let's just play it. Let's just play it. Doing time. Party time. The sequel to a lot of surprises. The sequel to Scared Straight to Jail. The sequel to Break In 2. The sequel to Break In. Doing time. Party time. This party will last for five to ten years. That looks good. Prison party. Prison party. It's a prison party movie. Now, he never actually got to have the party. He was, let's just say he was ready to party. Well, and then he got all hung up on the razor wire. The phrase based on a true story is very yeah. it's up for interpretation. Mm-hmm. Prison party. Those are two words you don't hear together very often. Looks good. Looks like Hollywood's kind of desperate. You know, they had La La Land. Well, the last the last one, what was the last one? Uh, a lot of surprises made like 500 million dollars. Did it really? Yeah. Well, that's a lot of surprise. I didn't think that one would go anywhere. Oh, times are good, my friends. Times are good. We are going to take a break. When we come back, we'll be talking about why children struggle hiding. Why are they so bad at it? You ever played hide-and-seek with your kids? They're just not good at it at all. We'll explain why. Pretty interesting. Developmentally, what's going on in those little heads. 
We'll be back. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, we were talking, we were going to be talking with a researcher about the psychology behind why kids are terrible at hiding. And we're, she's playing a little hide and she's seek. She's playing a little hide and seek with us. But we're going we're gonna to keep trying to get her on the line. Um, but uh, while we're waiting, we will get back to some more headlines that are big. One thing a lot of people are talking about is this fake news thing. Fake news. And the hard thing about fake news is... What news is fake? Because the well, Donald Trump's always, you know, touted for having being so bad at fake news, actually being so incredibly good at fake news. But um, here's the dilemma. Donald Trump throws back, well, you were all saying that I couldn't be elected. Which isn't fake news. It's a difference of opinion. Well, they, but they were using the data. So the data was saying he couldn't be elected. Right. He couldn't be elected. And they're saying that's fake because I was elected. But so, not fake news. No. Fake news is just a complete up, lie. Yeah, this complete is lie, like Hillary use, Clinton is a alien, right? She's a lizard person and all this stuff that the stuff's been floating around. Right. So CNN Money had this article. It says Facebook's trending section. That's if you go on the desktop, you go to Facebook. It's on your the right hand side of the Which top. Has has had some issues of late because the trending didn't trend. They had a staff that was curating all that. They did some things they didn't like, so they fired them all and turned it over to the computers to do it. And the computers haven't done that good of a job, so now they're kind of looking at it again. Facebook's trending section is getting an update that may help stop fake news from getting uh, on the on the website and in, in some uh, kind of uh, important places where your eyes catch it and you'll be you'll notice it. Instead of surfacing information on its trending section section based on how many people are talking about a particular article, it will now factor. In the breadth of the conversation, that is how many news articles have been published on the subject Ah, and the volume of conversations surrounding them. That's smart. Also, topics served through the section will no longer be based on user interests. Instead, Facebook members will see the same popular topics as everyone else in in the country as part of an effort to keep news and its angles consistent. That's, That's smart. Also, in 2016... A uh, website called Bad Ads, it's a bad ads report that mm-hmm. Google puts out. Um, they uh, block 68 million pharmaceutical ads. That's up 137% from 2015. They block 68 80, million. 80 million ads for deceiving and shocking users, 5 million ads for payday loans, 112 million trick to click ads containing malware. That's up 600% from 2015. And 1,300 accounts disabled for tabloid cloaking or pretending to be real news. Wow. How many was that last one? 1,300. Okay, now this is really fascinating because um, it seems like we could uh, we could probably say that the reason those ads all went up is because people a year or two ago were hitting on them so hard. Yes. So maybe as consumers, if we were smarter about this process, we wouldn't take so much of the bait. Have you well, fallen for those such and such celebrity has we lost them too soon? You click on it and it's something that's not related to their death. Yeah. Click, yeah. There, there's the stuff like that is what I guess Google's trying to find a way to weed out. So um, here's the deal, because one of the things I, I guess that 
we have a responsibility to not take the bait sometimes. I mean, I get it, but the whole fake news thing only worked on it only works on certain people, and it's only certain people that spread the fake news. So maybe there should be something punitive about spreading such fakery. Could be that would take some legislation, right? Well, not no. I'm talking Facebook. Well, Facebook. What they their problem is is people can serve up ads yeah. alongside these fake news articles, and what Facebook and Google are trying to do is figure out a way to separate the ads mm-hmm. and getting these people paid for doing the fa- for providing fake news. But are so. these the ads that that people? Because isn't a lot of the fake news then spread in the – it's the people on Facebook that, hey, I like this article. Cause, right. Look, Hillary is an alien. People said that she was. So see, here we go. And then we just spread the fake news. Yeah. But I'm saying they're always throttling me as a business owner. They're always telling me that uh, I can't do certain things. Right. So – why aren't they throttling the everyday user of they're, Facebook? They're trying to do that, trying to figure out a way to do that. But you had to figure out who's fake news and who's real news, what's opinion, what's not. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's do this. Let's take a break. We'll come back, and uh, it looks like we're going to be able to get her on and talk about why children are so bad at hiding. Don't take the bait for the fake news, for heaven's sakes. You know, we got to have some responsibility for our own media life. We don't do fake news on this show. No, we only do empty news. The Matt Townsend Show News. We'll be back. Stick with us. Welcome back. You know, young children across the globe enjoy playing games of hide-and-seek. There's something highly exciting for them, trying to escape someone else's glance or making, you know, oneself invisible. However, developmental psychologists and parents alike continue to witness that before school age, children are remarkably bad at hiding. Curiously, they often cover their only their face or their eyes with their hands, leaving the rest of their bodies visibly exposed. So uh, we wanted to find out more about this. And Enrique, uh, Dr. Enrique Mole, assistant professor of developmental psychology at uh, USC, is here to help us uh, understand what's going on in those little minds. Dr. Mole, thank you for being with us. Yes, thank you for having me. This is such an interesting um, uh, idea. Now, so talk to us. So when, when you're playing hide-and-seek with, with a child and, or even peekaboo with a younger child and they cover their face, um, it, I mean, it used to be that we would think that they were just kind of so uh, self not, – not self-centric, but so self-focused that they – it was always about them. If they couldn't, uh, if they couldn't see us, then, then, um, then we weren't there. But what is really going on in their heads when they're covering their eyes? Yeah, so that's exactly the point that people used to believe up until now that um, that children were terribly egocentric, that they were unable to take another person's point of view and transcend or decenter from their own viewpoint. But the fact that these young children up until the age of around five will judge that another person is not visible to them, cannot seen by them, unless this person makes eye contact with them, says something else. And namely, 
it shows that these children want to be um, mutually seen. So they want to see the other while at the same time knowing that the other can see them. Hmm. So for them, yes, so seeing, but also other modes of perception, also hearing and actually um, not just perception, but speaking as well. So different channels of communication really only work unless uh, they work and go both ways. Because, mm. I mean, just an, about an hour ago, we were talking with another uh, researcher about how important it is for the children to be seeing an object in their hand. And and by by looking at the object and, and having a very focused attention on the object, with somebody then labeling the object, it helps them speak and, and, and improve their, their verbalization earlier. Now, all of a sudden, we're seeing that these kids want mutual – they want mutuality. They want a mutually engaged experience with hide-and-seek or with that's any exactly activity. Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. So these human beings in general, but especially as infants, um, they are just such relational beings. They really just want to make contact with the other. They want to connect with the other. And again, for them, it's tremendously important that the communication flows both ways. There is no such a thing as unilateral communication with a human being. To the extent that I cannot even see you or I cannot hear you or speak to you unless you can do the same thing to me or with me at the same time. And they take that into full consideration at that time. Wow, which, which says a lot for us as parents that we have to be present. Yes, very much so. Yes. And attentive. Because what, what, yes, I, yes. I, I see it with my grandchild that I get, I get really bored with the game. <laughs> um, and, yes. you, you know, you want to get back to your thing, but she keeps coming back for more. And it really is, it's an engagement. She's trying to engage me eye to eye, you know, ear to ear in a way. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, there's this insistence on, on mutual and reciprocal engagement. And I think what Peekaboo does at a very young age and, you know, humans are the only ones who, who play this, this sort of game. What this game shows is that there's a real tension and an interest in kind of seeing the other go out of sight and then come back into sight. And it's very exciting, this game. Um, and there's, I mean, there's a lot to, to be said about this game. It also involves the anticipation of a sequence and of the next sort of reappearance of the other, right? It, it's anticipated the other is anticipated in a in a kind of um excited way yeah. uh, it also trains of course uh, a more fundamental skill which is called object permanence namely this uh, fundamental understanding that we have that things persist or keep existing even when they're out of sight and what peekaboo does is uh, actually train that also because by just going away for a little bit um, that, of course, doesn't mean that you will never return again, and the child anticipates and knows that you will return and that your sight will come back, but she's awaiting that with um, with curiosity, and so it actually works on a number of different interesting levels, this, do, this very basic game. Yeah. Do we disable, I mean, do we, do we um, or stall or stunt the growth of a child if we don't play these games? Or and if they don't play, if no one's playing it with them, yeah, that's an interesting speculation. Um, I actually have looked for uh, ethnographic studies or studies of uh, intercultural psychology to see if this is a universally played game, which would be my my guess. Yeah, 
and why I don't know that it is. I haven't really seen any uh, reports on that. I know it's played in a lot of cultures. Do we know it's being played everywhere? I, I don't know that, but I would think so. Um, and what the damages, though, and the consequences are in terms of social development or social-emotional development on the part of the child, were we to deprive the child of this kind of game, I do not know. But what we can say for sure is that on a bigger scale, if you deny social contact and interaction with a child, um, that that's absolutely detrimental, mm. of course, to the child's um, to the child's well-being, to the extent where, and I think this um, these were not really experiments, but yeah. things that were done in the Middle Ages in a few cases where um, people said, okay, we're we're going to um, See what happens if we do not interact with this child, if we do not um, make physical contact with it. We just kind of feed it and try to keep it alive by way of basically just feeding it, nourishing it, that that was not enough that these infants basically died mm. by lack of contact and lack of social interaction. That's tragic. Um, I, I guess one of the things, yeah, we wouldn't know culturally, does every culture in every country in every age is peekaboo a natural thing? But I, I thought I had read somewhere research about babies um, tend to open their eyes wider and 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 I don't know, wider when when they're talking to their mother or their father or or an adult is I don't know if that's accurate, but it's it's almost from birth we we turn we tend to turn these babies face to face. Yes, we do, and we do that sort of naturally and and intuitively. We also assume naturally and intuitively a certain distance from the child, um, getting just about, I don't know, maybe half a meter away from the child mm. or a little more. And that's um, also something that's found universally, and it happens to be the distance at which these young infants see best, you know, where their visual acuity isn't perfect after birth, but that's the distance um, that they can that they can span with their with their vision. So there's many things that are that are very interesting in this regard. And yes, they, babies have a, a preference for for faces, and not just faces, but especially for the eyes. They want to look at eyes. They prefer direct gaze over averted gaze or closed eyes. Um, so it seems that they are ready and sort of biologically prepared to have their eyes interlock with others um, practically from birth, hmm. almost from birth. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because they're 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 attaching, they're connecting in when they're playing a game or peekaboo. The, you're, you're having a moment of of connection, and a lot of us. I mean, I guess even back when we had the paradigm or the belief that kids or children are just inherently self centric, that that they may not be having this engagement. Um, but it's it's a special moment because you are connected to a. To a brand new human being. I mean, this is, and it's developmentally helpful. Yes, I agree. Yes, and again, they they really do insist on this uh, mutual form of engagement. So, for, for them, um, communicating is not about imparting information uh, to another individual, sort of unilaterally. That's not what it's about when we communicate. But for them, the question is always, uh, can the other reciprocate the act? Can not only I see him, but can he see me too? And unless they can affirm that question, they will really deny that they are able to engage with you properly, that they are able to address you or see you, and so on. Oh, that is, that really is profound. 
Because it, it just especially when I see later on in life how this lack of connection exists in, with lack of attachment with so many people where they, they can't attach later in life because of other traumas and experiences. And, and yet you see it's such a natural thing for a baby to, to want is this mutuality and I need reciprocity. I need to know you're seeing me. You're having a similar experience. Powerful. Yeah. Man. Yeah, it's interesting that these infants even sort of speak, uh, seem to speak the mind of pretty well-known philosophers, you know, philosophers yeah. of intersubjectivity who were just really interested in this dyadic and nature of, of humans, such as Martin Buber, but yeah. also Jean-Luc Rousseau and people like that. And it seems that these uh, young infants seem to have an intuitive understanding or, or sense of these ideas that were worked out with so much more effort by these philosophers. But... Um, they are naturally inclined to just act in the way that is uh, being described in these um, theories of intersubjectivity. So Rousseau, for example, said that humans are very well aware, actually sometimes all too aware, of the presence of the other and of the fact that they live in the eyes of others. And these young children in our experiments show that they know about this fact. Oh, wow. And Buber, of all people, that's amazing. That's great stuff. Cool. Well, we appreciate you. Enrique Mole, Dr. Enrique Mole from USC. Keep up your work there. I'm dying to have you back and, and uh, continue to learn from you. Ah, folks, we depend on each other. We want this mutuality, this connection with others. You know, we are deeply aware of the presence of others, and uh, we need that connection from birth, it looks like. We'll take a break, come back, stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. I don't suppose they told you anything about the tragedy we had here last winter? Well, a man named Charles Gravy, he was our previous caretaker, he came up here with his wife and two children, as well as his twenty wild boars. And at some point, he must have suffered some kind of mental breakdown, and he let his boars roam free on the grounds of this hotel. Well, the boars ran amok and completely dug up the lawn on the property. And even ate all the geranium plants. You can rest assured, Mr. Ullman, that's not going to happen with me. Now, the site is supposed to be built on a wild boar burial ground. And I believe they actually had to repel a few wild boar attacks as they were building it. Now, if you're worried about wild boar attacks, you'll want to shine this red light that simulates predators, and that should keep them away. Little pigs, little pigs, let me come in. Not by the hair on your chinny-chin-chin. Then I'll huff, and I'll puff, and I'll blow your house in. Whining. These hogs will bore you to death.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Man, I got to go see that movie, The Swining. That sounds so good. I, I didn't see it. did not come up for any uh, Academy Award nominations. No. No. It Hold was up. released in, you know, just a little yeah. outside the deadline. You got to release it right in that, right in that, you know, that that sweet spot uh, or, you know, it's just not going to make it big. Let's shoot it down. Speaking of sweet spot, let's shoot it down to two of our good buddies, uh, Spencer and Jerem, who are getting ready for their big show on BYU Sports Nation that takes place uh, on this very same channel at the top of the hour. Hello, gentlemen. With it. With Avenue. Hello, Matthew. How are you? What's the... What's that movie rated? Uh, it's rated PG thirteen. Oh, okay. Yeah, they because the, cool. the original Shining that was an R, I believe. Mm. Um, but yeah. this is PG thirteen because it, it involves pigs, and there are some very cute moments with pigs. I am told, mm. and then there's some ugly ones. It's a side story. It's a it's a side story to Babe. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of Babe. It's a mix between Babe and The Shining. That's a healthy mix. <laughs> yeah. Charlotte is Kale not. Kale and Char- Mango. And it, there's even Charlotte from Charlotte's Web. She's also in it. Oh, yeah. She just has a little cameo. Nice. It's a beautiful movie. Um, so, gentlemen, how are you? Feeling fantastic, Matthew. Nito, <laughs> how are you? Hey, um, I'm, I'm excellent. I'm having a good day because I'm about 10 minutes away from my show being done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're almost done, baby. I'm almost done, baby. Hey, do you guys think uh, everyone's making such a big deal? And in fact, the, did you hear the Patriots and all of the? They don't like Goodell. They don't like the the big dude, the, the head of the second. NFL. The New England fans hey, have you not don't heard this? like Roger Goodell. They don't Wait, like. They him. don't like something. They don't. They're they don't like him. about something. What? Yeah. They, they don't, Is the world against them? Yeah, you you guys like haven't they heard want this. It? No. Yeah. <laughs> But now Roger Goodell's making comments that he's he's fine handing them the Lombardi Trophy if they win it. He's there, there's no problem for him. He's fine with it. But our New England fans okay with it? That's it, huh? Is this going to ever go away? I guess it only goes away when no. they, if they win this. If Are you they win kidding this me? Game. This will never not be a thing. Yeah, I just used a double negative. That was a double negative. Every English major hates you. I blame that on Korean because they use double negatives oh, do to they? emphasize like. That something will never happen. I mean, it really, really won't happen. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, everyone says that when when everybody was looking at uh, Tom Brady's inflated coat. That was hilarious. Thank you for uh, putting us on to that. uh, Pretty hot, isn't it? (laughs) It's a nice little stream um, or feed. I'm thinking, though, that that had kind of an echoing of back to to deflate gate, but it was inflate gate. (laughs) <laughs> Inflategate, nice. Tom Brady's not so subtle <laughs> shot at <laughs> See? Deflate Gate. Exactly. Inflating his coat and shoulder pads. Are are you guys is do you think the Patriots are going to win? Yes, I do. Oh, come on. Yeah. Not that I want them to win. I really but think... yes, I do think they will win. It's the, their their rival and and demise, the Giants are not in the Super Bowl. No. The Giants took him down twice. The other four, they won. But see, all you got to do is go watch the. Let's go see what the Giants did, right? Yeah, just throw they up get a Matt. hail mary. Yeah. Have a guy named David Tyree grab yeah. it and stick it to the side of his helmet. But the Falcons have some serious, some serious players. Here, historically, this is how it works. If you have the number one offense in the NFL, yeah, you don't win the Super Bowl because the. You have to have some defense. But the they do have, have a, a good defense. defense. That's what's interesting about the Falcons. What, what's their defense rated? Do you know? 
Jerem is looking I, I it up right now. I don't know, but I I'll they're be not too. they're not one of the top defenses in the league. What what's the defense? What's how do the Patriots rate? The Patriots are the number one scoring defense in the National Football League. Boom. Oh brother. <laughs> That's not good. <laughs> that, it'll get you. <laughs> that, that there's your problem right there. You need to fix that problem right there. Oh boy. Uh, yeah, the the Falcons have some players on defense. I mean, they shut they shut down the Packers for a little while, and that was that's tough to do, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Boy. Okay. Just kind of. Atlanta's twenty fifth in yards allowed per game. Oh boy. Trying to look up scoring. <sighs> look up points. I was hoping. I was really hoping that because I really think Matt Ryan he needs a little trophy. Twenty seventh in points. Twenty seventh. Patriots points are allowed. your your uh, Super Bowl fifty one champs. Because <laughs> that you either love the Patriots or you just don't. Here's, here's the thing. Uh, we've been hard on the Patriots on our program. On our program. program. Every, everyone is. And, yeah, most people are. But when they play well, when yeah. they are good, it is better for football. It's like when the Yankees or the Red Sox are good at baseball. It, it makes it more compelling. Mm-hmm. People care more about it when they have somebody to root against. Yeah, na- that's nationally, it. too. Like. The NBA right now, you don't have a good team in L.A. that's actually contending. The Clippers are doing fine. Lakers the Lakers are, bad. are good. Knicks are bad. Boston's fine. Like when the it's, Knicks and Lakers need, are good, it's better. The bowl, you, know, you need like the core three there mm-hmm. to uh, step it up a little bit. Like Golden State is fun, but they'll be a bigger Golden deal when they're, when, they're called the, when they're called the San Francisco Warriors. All of a sudden, they, it will feel bigger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The San Francisco yeah, Warriors. We're talking national interest. Right. And ratings play that out, right? New York and L.A. Okay, oh. when those teams are good, yep. sports are generally better. See? Well, and by the way, defense is Kyle Van Noy in the Patriots. I mean, it's, it's got a good thing. That's, That's good. That's the silver lining. That's the silver lining. There's Kyle su- Van Noy is going to be a Super Bowl champion. And just think what that'll do for Reno. The Kyle, city of Reno or yeah. Reno Mahe? No, no, yeah, and Reno Mahe. No, the Which city Reno? of Reno. I know what you're saying. It's exactly the what Reno biggest needs. Little city. <laughs> so, okay, I gotta. I know I gotta let you go. So, what's on your show today? What are we doing on our show today? I thought we were just talking about the Super Bowl for the whole time. Um, you guys ought to try. How about it? BYU has not lost a game against Santa Clara since the year 1972. Seventeen in a row. Uh, mm. Let's not start today. But strangely, tonight's game has a lot of people worried. It feels. Differently than previous contests. Really? Okay. And you will not believe our stat of the day. Oh, it boy. It is, okay. in the words of our senior coordinating producer yesterday, redonkulous. <laughs> Steve Cleveland will join us, the president coach from uh, Santa Clara. He's, cool. Uh, on the oh, home, yeah. Radio he knows. He knows. He watched Nick Emery practice uh, last night. How did he look? How's he feeling? Is he going to play? What's the situation there? Um What's the line for this game, which is pretty surprising. We'll get into that. Cool. Are going for two picks. And then uh, BYU's Aquaman, Peyton Sorensen. He's a speedster uh, for the BYU swim team. He'll oh, the studio. That's cool. Good show as usual. And it begins in about four and a half minutes. Gentlemen, I'll Let's let you it. go. Go get those Speedos on. Too late. We promise not to <laughs> bore you to death. Oh, <laughs> Thank you from this whining. Take care, guys. Have a great show. Knock him dead. Yeah, that that movie, The Swining, again, it's one that nobody hears about, but it's, you know. Well, I mean, there are all these other Oscar-nominated movies out right now that are kind of stealing the limelight. Yeah, La La Land. I mean, you could 
Go to the the Swining or La La Land. Which one are you going to choose? I know if it's up to your wife, you're going to see La La Land again. I know. We are. She hates pork thrillers. It's it's an underappreciated genre, <laughs> subgenre, really. The mix of Babe and The Shining. It's that. Hey, um, <laughs> this uh, there's been a speeding problem apparently. A lot of people are speeding lately. A, a, a driver was clocked at 91 miles an hour in a snowstorm. Which is not smart. In New Hampshire, state police say the driver clocked at 91 during the snowstorm and said she was late for an appointment to have a new car stereo installed. Police say they stopped 21-year-old woman as the highway was covered with snow and slush. Speed limits in Concord range from 55 to 65. And yet she was going about uh, to 91 miles an hour, even though everyone else, the traffic had been reduced to 45 miles an hour. You do not want to miss one of those appointments no. to get your stereo installed. They will slam you with late fees. Oh, They'll yeah. make you sit in their waiting room for hours. They don't mess around. No. You and yet Zadio from Is this her? There she goes. There she goes. She was flying. Yeah, so, don't mess around with those appointments. But have you have you slipped on the ice lately? Uh, yeah, past several days. Next time, clock it. You'll feel what it feels like when you fall at 91 miles an hour. It ain't pretty. It ain't pretty. Uh, we don't have time to get too into the story. Another guy in Florida, 132 miles an hour. He was clocked and then crashed. And lived. And apparently lived. I mean, yeah. Sad. Slow down, folks. Slow down. Hero of the day. A teen makes a Sit With Us app that helps students find lunch buddies. Listen to this. Sit With Us helps students who have a difficulty finding a place to sit locate a welcoming group into the lunchroom. Natalie Hampton, a 16-year-old from Sherman Oaks, California, is the designer of the Sit With Us app, which launched on September 9th. She was inspired to create it after she ate alone her entire seventh grade year. The situation left Hampton feeling vulnerable and made her target a target for bullying. Hampton, now a junior, is attending a different school and is thriving socially. Yet the memory of sitting alone and being bullied still haunts her, uh, especially since she knows her experience isn't an isolated one. People are already posting open lunches at my school, uh, she told the program. So I'm very excited that things are already kicking off with a great start. So now you can go onto the app and at your school and your uh, you can find a place to sit, have a friend to sit by. So special thanks to Natalie Hampton, who's the hero of the day on the Matt Townsend Show, 16 years young and yet still makes an app that brings people together. That's what a hero looks like, my friends, and you are a hero as well. If you just include people and look for those that are being left out, let's do it. Stop this. Uh, stop the bullying of, of, uh, of the people. The, the people in our world and our lives It's only going to get harder and more harsh if we don't take care of each other. That's the show. We'll be back again tomorrow. Give you a little leg up on life and to help you see the good in the world. Until tomorrow, make it a great one. and Let's take care of each other.